Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, February 26, 843-661-0937 is our number. Morning, Josh. Morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. The week begins posing a very important question. You ready? Who has the better baseball and men's basketball team, Clemson or South Carolina? I think it's a fair debate. I mean, you know, it's not, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not politics, and we'll get to the South Carolina primary here eventually. But it looks to me like the two men's basketball teams are pretty close to one another, a little bit similar to one another. Um, and it looks to me like the baseball teams, I mean, I think we'll find that out this weekend, right? I mean, don't they play a three-game series? They do. One in Columbia, one in Clemson, one in, uh, yeah, a neutral site, Greenville. Um, <laughs> I still believe the um, the best thing they could do is play a weekday game in Clemson, a weekday game in Columbia, and a weekend series at the Myrtle Beach Pelicans Stadium. A truly neutral site. I mean, you turn it into a, a, a weekend extravaganza. I mean, go, go to Clemson on a Wednesday night. Go to Columbia. On, I understand he got ACC, got SEC schedules that start sooner than later. There's complexities here. You know, you, you can't stack your staff the way you need to stack your staff. And you don't want to throw a midweek starter against your arch rival. I get all that. But for the fans' enjoyment, I think it would be wonderful for the state. Now, I doubt Coastal likes that much. <laughs> you know, come, come, you know, taking a leak in my backyard. Not too, um, not too much enthusiasm from the Coastal crowd. But I believe that the in the in the spirit of what's good for the rivalry, Rev. Let's go to Clemson on a Wednesday. Let's go back to Columbia on another Wednesday, and let's set aside a, a weekend. And let's play a Friday, Saturday, Sunday in Myrtle Beach. They've got all the hotel rooms. You can build a Clemson Carolina weekend um, golf tournaments. You can do a lot of fundraising benefits. The fan bases of each university, the former players and athletes of each university. I just think it would be a um, a spectacular, a uh, an extravaganza. I think is what I said earlier. So I'm still lobbying for. Weekday game, weekday game, three-game series in Myrtle Beach. And um, I understand from, I mean, that, there was some conversations about that years ago. And some of the Clemson folk were worried about getting back from Myrtle Beach all the way to the upstate on a Sunday night. Um, you know, play a noon game on Sunday, finish the game by 3 or 3.30. And, I mean, I think the state of South Carolina could some way somehow drum up the money for airfare to get the Clemson team back to the upstate. I mean, I don't know how long it takes to drive from Greenville or this, you know, the Clemson area all the way to Myrtle Beach. I just think it's good for the state. I think it highlights the baseball series, and it kind of shows Coastal Carolina. Uh, there's still two legacy universities in our state. And, um, I mean, if I'm a Coastal fan, I'm like, no, I don't want them down here. Let them do what they've always done. And uh, the neutral site game is not really a neutral site game. I mean, Greenville does a great job, and they've deserved it. I mean, I've gone to a couple of the games in Greenville, and they've done a spectacular job, but it's more tilted toward the Clemson fan base because it's easier to get there. It's kind of in their, in their backyard. Second sports item I want to touch on this week, there's an undercurrent happening in America today with college athletics, and I'm sure of it now. I've got a really good friend who would live a very similar life to me. I mean, we, he was in business together. We, um, I mean, when I was building truck beds for a living, he was a guy that called on me. I mean, he owned his own sales rep company. 
and he would call on me about four or five different companies that we used that didn't have their own sales staff. He was a kind of, kind of a, um, a hired gun for these three or four companies. We built a really good friendship. His family was at about the same place. Mine was young kids trying to figure it out together. We built an endearing 25 year friendship. We stay in touch with one another. I texted him yesterday about something to do with business. And then he's a big Florida Gator fan. Grew up in Florida, loves the Gators, have given money to Gators. I think generational graduates from the University of Florida. So at the end of the conversation, I text, hey, Gators and Gamecocks this coming Saturday in a big basketball game. Who to thunk it? You know, something like that. Who to thunk it? And he sent back, not for me, I'm out. There was a there was a kid, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing his text. There was a kid who signed an NIL deal who has never played a down at the University of Florida, bought his mom a house that I looked at 10 years ago and couldn't afford. And I'm going like, do I detect jealousy? He said, no, I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous at all. I'm not blaming the kid, but they have screwed this sport up. I mean, they have absolutely screwed this sport up. He added a few colorful expletives <laughs> to the uh, to the text that I'll leave on unsaid over the uh, over the airways because this is terrestrial radio but i just gotta believe that that's not singularly anecdotal i mean i, I just gotta believe there are a lot of fans out there and we don't have a boogeyman i mean we don't have hey it's josh's fault it's rev's fault it's ken's fault it, it's everybody's fault to be honest with you that we allowed college athletics and i'm thinking about college men's basketball and football in particular those would be the um I mean, the cash cows, football, more so where we are. But, I mean, there, there are universities around the country that generate enormous re- revenue on their basketball teams, their basketball appeal, uh, March Madness, how consistently they make the playoffs and or, uh, the uh, college basketball playoffs and how consistently they make runs. In the uh, I'm thinking about North Carolina, Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, uh, you know, UCLA. I mean, there, there's some others, but those would come to mind quicker than most. And it just seems to me, Rev, that the fan bases have decided, and this is a weird way to say it, but stick with me for a second. The fan doesn't believe he has the ability to impact the sport any longer. I mean, I'm giving 500 bucks to the Gamecock Club. I'm giving $250 to imitate. That's about all I can stand. Doesn't matter. I mean, somebody's giving a million. Somebody's giving a million and a half. Television networks are doling out a billion dollars to the Big Ten and and the SEC. And I just think, I mean, it's almost like, you know, the love of money is the root of all evil. I don't know that we publicly signed, you know, a document saying, hey, I as college football fans adhere to the rules and regulations for the love of the money. Uh, But we did. I mean, we in essence did. And I don't know how you, I mean, you don't put that genie back in the bottle because I think eventually the player ends up an employee of the university. But it's just that people, I guess, of my generation, grew up having a certain feeling about college athletics and it's just not there any longer. And I'm afraid that we're going to see a lot of fans beginning to kind of I mean, check out. You know, I'm, I am I pull for the Tigers, I pull for the Gamecocks, but I'm not worrying myself sick about it. I'm just not. I mean, if they win, they win. Um, I'm not writing another $10,000 check to my beloved university. I'm not agreeing to pay $1,000 a month to be a part of a higher level, you know, I want to be in the gold club. I want to be a, I ble- you know, we bleed orange, we bleed garnet, whatever though. I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying, I think fans in general are beginning really, really frustrated with what universities are asking them 
to contribute to be competitive in in, in high-flying college athletics. And I think you're going to see a lot of fan bases just say, hey, I'm going back to be a fan of amateur athletics. I'll tell you who could be the big winners in this. The universities like Francis Marion. I mean, you, 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 you take a, a debit card or a credit card, you walk up to the basketball arena, you take your two kids and wife, and it's 60 bucks. It's 50 bucks. You know, 50 or 60 bucks doesn't get you on the mailing list at South Carolina or Clemson. I mean, the Power Five schools have just, I mean, they've really separated themselves. And I mean, Clemson and South Carolina bought in. I mean, it became an arms race. And they had a chance, I would imagine, Rev, 20, 25 years ago to say, hey, this is what we signed up for. I mean, we're not going back to our fan base and asking for more and more and more and more and more and more and more. But they did. And the fans have responded. But now all of a sudden, I've got a friend of mine in Florida that says, look, you know, a kid's coming in, never played a down, got so much money, and and he's not jealous. I mean, I, I know this guy well enough to know that he's not jealous. I just know he's, he's a smart guy, and he's saying, something's broken. I mean, something bad's wrong with, with a game. And, and like I said, we're looking for a boogeyman. Well, I mean, I, I know the boogeyman, but it takes a little bit of unraveling to get there. I mean, the NCAA is the enforcement arm of the member institutions. I mean, the NCAA isn't some mystical monolith over in a corner that floated in one night and decided to take over college athletics. I mean, the member universities allowed the NCAA, NCAA doesn't do anything without universities being on board. And when the NCAA basically wrote a letter challenging some of the hearings, and the reason I'm talking about the injunction, I don't know if you saw this over the weekend or not, but the injunction applied for by Virginia and North Carolina were upheld by some of the courts in Virginia and North Carolina, and they're basically saying the same thing the Supreme Court said in the, um, in the NIL case that you've been running, for lack of a better word, a cartel. I mean, uncompensated athletic performance is part of the student, you know, the uh, the student athlete's experience is, I mean, that's, that's absurd. I mean, how do you make that much money on another man or woman's productivity, men by and large, because it's women, excuse me, men's and um, men's football and basketball. And I just think it's the beginning of the end. But But once again, I've had people tell, well, the universities put, uh, the NCAA put the universities in a bad place. Well, I mean, the, the NCAA is the enforcement arm of the member institutions. And I've heard athletic directors recently, recently say that the former model of intercollegiate athletics was working just fine. The majority of kids graduated and a few of the better ones went pro. He failed to leave. He, he failed to mention that the U.S. Supreme Court considered it a criminal enterprise. I mean, I get, I mean, I've heard more athletic directors than you could imagine say that, well, I mean, who, you know, yeah, we got a big mess on our hands. It didn't have to be this way. I mean, the former model worked just fine. Intercollegiate athletes, athletics were working just fine. <laughs> it did for the university. The majority, oh, my good God, <laughs> if I'm running, if I'm working at a university and don't say that, I'm derelicting my responsibilities. <laughs> I mean, I've got to say that. He failed to mention, because he said, and I don't call names, he said, you know, 90% of the student athletes graduated, one and a half to 2% went on to sign professional contracts, one half of 1% made life-changing money, and all the buses were running on time, and everything was hunky-dory and working just fine. He failed to mention, he failed to mention that the U.S. Supreme Court, the only voice that matters in this particular ordeal, 
said, what you're doing here is pretty much running a criminal enterprise by taking such advantage of kids' productivity on, you know, in athletic events and not allowing them to be compensated in any way, shape, or form. Long way to get there because I want to get back and talk about the South Carolina primary, but, but the text I shared yesterday with my good Florida Gator fan, I don't think is anecdotal. I think there are many, 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 many million fans saying, ah, I'm going to stay a fan. I'm going to watch the games, but I'm not answering the phone when Ip Taylor, the Gamecock Club, called me or one of these collectives called me and asked for another 1,000, another 5,000, another 10,000. What you've got to fundamentally ask yourself, how important is it to you to be good at college football, to be good, good at college basketball? I mean, if you've got unlimited resources, what it doesn't matter. I mean, I get that. But how many people have unlimited resources? I mean, some have more than others, but very few have unlimited resources. And, and I guess that's where you go. I mean, I guess if you're working for one of these universities, you go to those who have unlimited resources. But I believe the majority of us who don't have unlimited resources, we're going to casually drift back into being far more a casual fan than we are an activist fan. And that may be good in the grand scheme of things. Take a break. Back in just a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. I've done the best I can uh, yesterday. I watched some racing. What a race yesterday. Shout out to NASCAR. A lot of wrecks, and I don't like that, but what a race. I mean, a photo finish that took about a cool-down lap and a half to figure out who had won yeah, the thing. I mean, it's a cool. three-wide, you know, within half inches of one another um, finish line. But Atlanta was an exciting race. And I've said before, I'm tired of NASCAR making strategy the priority, racing secondary. It looks to me like the folks at Atlanta who came up with the concept of the seven-inch spoiler and the new asphalt, I mean, they really figured out how to race. I mean, strategy's still a part of it. And you got to get in the right line and make the right move. I mean, I get I, that's driving. I mean, that's that's a good driver and a good, and a good team. But they raced yesterday a lot. I mean, there was a lot of, um, I think one of the drivers said, you're fearing for your life and having fun all at the same time. <laughs> so, so, you know, anytime a race car driver, Josh, is fearing for his life and having fun, it's a good product. I mean, that's always a good product in racing. And, and that's kind of a change because after Daytona, I heard a lot of chatter about, eh, that is not, it's, it's kind a of strategy. Boring. Yeah. I mean, it, you sh- you're slowing down at the fastest. I mean, if you call it the world center of speed and you're slowing down intentionally to save fuel as a, as a group, I mean, the, the lead car is backing up and nobody will pass him because they want to save fuel. To me, that's too much strategy and not enough racing. And yesterday was, I, I think, the right combination of racing and, um, and race strategy. So congratulations um, to NASCAR. I would imagine the majority of you out there up this morning listening to the radio, listening to this show, or trying to figure out what our take is. What do we make of the 2020 South Carolina Republican presidential primary it, it, it went about as planned. I mean, once again, I've dug into some of the information and we'll kind of go down the road of where do we go from here. But I mean, I think Kahaley's last poll had it at 59, 38 ish. I think it ended up at about 60, 40. I mean, that was in the majority of the, or in the margin of error. I think there were one poll, one outlier had Trump up 28, maybe somewhere thereabout. I mean, I think with, um, I mean, the number that sticks out to me, Rev, is 75, 25. 
I mean, I've seen it 72-28. I've seen it 74-26. I've seen it 76-24. I mean, that's some of the exit polling on Republican voters. I mean, the Republican primary voter voted for Donald Trump about three to one. Uh, somewhere thereabout. I mean, I'm not saying that's exactly right. That's higher than I think I anticipated. I mean, if you really want to break it down and go to subsets, and Robert and I text a little bit over the weekend, he's still trying to make heads or tails of, you know, kind of doing a postmortem on what his polls show, what some of the exits say. The New York Times has a lot of exit polling. I mean, it broke down some of the um, some of the districts. Catherine Templeton has to be a bit excited. Um, Nancy Mace lost. Excuse me, Donald Trump lost Nancy Mace's congressional district. I, I would imagine if you're Templeton, that okay, I mean that that's some, what what to make of that. I think you got to be careful not to make too much of that. Yeah, but the people opposed to Trump say, of course, their line is yeah, forty percent of Republicans don't want the guy. But I mean, it's not that simple. You know better than that. I mean, that's Twitter sphere and that's some of the national but, media pundits. But, that, but that's what they're they're I mean, holding that, on to. Well, okay, well, wh- where's the question? I mean, here's when you know the journalists have no interest and being journalistic. I mean, if you want to know how many Trump support, how many Haley supporters aren't going to back for, vote for Donald Trump, there's a million stories out there. Where's the story that shows the ask of the Trump voter whether you'll vote for Haley if she's the nominee? I mean, they're, 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 they're petrified of that number. They don't want that number to get out. So that's why you know the media is in on the fix. I did see where the American for, Americans for Prosperity pulled the plug um, late yesterday afternoon and said, you know, no more money for Haley. I tried to find this um, this statistic that I couldn't. I'll try to run it down as the show progresses. I don't, I mean, I'm thinking about Kasich got out after he won Ohio. Cruz got out after he won Texas. I'm not saying after immediately following, but as bad as John Kasich did, he won Ohio. As bad as Ted Cruz did, he won Texas. Uh, Rubio got out before he lost Florida. Lindsey got out before he lost South Carolina. How do we make, I mean, how, how do you not, how does the determination not include with absolute certainty that Donald Trump is dominating the Republican primary unlike anybody ever has dominated? And I heard some friendly voices, and I know these folks from my time at the state level. Um, I mean, I, Warren Tompkins. Warren Tompkins would be a legendary consultant in the state of South Carolina. And I read something that Warren said online over the weekend where he said, you know, I'll be the first to admit that I underestimated how ingrained this American philosophy, American first philosophy, is with the rank-and-file Republican voters. I mean, that's a guy making a smart decision. I mean, Tompkins has been around Republican politics a lot longer than I have. He's studied it. He's a student of it. He's made a living talking about it and being in campaigns. I mean, Warren Tompkins would be legendary when it comes to South Carolina politics and kind of the inside baseball part of it. And Tompkins, I mean, unless he'd be misquoted, I mean, their quotation, I think it was an article I read in the Post and Courier, where he said, I just think we all underestimated. And his word was how ingrained this America First philosophy is uh, with this, this um, you know, our party. I mean, our Republican party, 23% of the voters identified as moderate or liberal. If you if you extrapolate that data, let's do the best we can. Let's play Robert Cahaley for a second. I don't believe that's twenty three cent Democrats. I mean, I don't believe every one of them's Democrat. Robert always led me to believe. He never said it because he didn't want to go on the record. But he always led me to believe that when they polled, 
they were polling with an inclusion of about 18% crossovers. Now, how many are motivated to vote for Nikki? How many are motivated to vote against Trump? I don't know that we ever got there. But Robert led me to believe that when they built these models, and his last poll had Trump at 59, Nikki at about 39, 38, somewhere thereabouts. So Trump got to 60, Nikki got to 40. I mean, that's well within the margin of error. I mean, that's about hitting it nail dead on the head. And I want to give Drew McKissick a shout-out. Drew said, hey, I mean, the polls have been right so far. I mean, they were right in Iowa. They were right in New Hampshire. We always wondered how much Nikki would increase her vote total by spending $16 million. I mean, that's the crazy part of this. Uh, Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, spent $16 million running against somebody who was not the former governor of South Carolina who spent less than two. And she lost by 20 percentage points. I mean, there's no good there. There's no silver lining there. I mean, there's a concern the Republicans have to have about, you know, that many people saying they won't vote for Trump have given uh, him as the nominee of the Republican Party. I don't know if you can, I mean, what, what, do, what does Trump do about that? I mean, it's like my father said, we know the problem, how are we going to fix it? I mean, if, you, if you're Donald Trump and you're his campaign and you know as a result of South Carolina, you've got somewhat of a, um, a microcosmic look at where the, the state of the voters are. I mean, I don't think we got a, a D. I, don't, I think South Carolina's better than Iowa or New Hampshire at reflecting what the consensus of the voters are. I mean, do, do you spend a billion dollars trying to convince never Trumpers to, you know, stop being never Trumpers? I don't think you do. I think it's a, I mean, I don't think that number's 23. I mean, I don't think, I think 10 to 12 to maybe 15% of Republican voters mean what they say when they say we're not going to vote for Donald Trump under any circumstance. Those are the ones that have so much at stake. I mean, the Koch brothers are open border Republicans. Trump wants to build a wall. I mean, they're, you know, they're, their business interest requires a lot of unskilled labor. It's good for their business when people are willing to work for pittance. I mean, it really is. That's good for the Koch brothers and their bottom line. So the Koch brothers are making an investment in Nikki Haley, not to win the presidency, but to damage Donald Trump. And I've had these debates with Republican insiders who say, no, nah, this is Nikki's ego. I mean, this is Nikki's ego. And I'm like, well, I know Nikki's got an ego. But she's got a big ego. She's got a mon, a mon, uh, just a monstrous ego. But no, this is about damaging Donald Trump. I mean, this is about making him less likely to win come November. But if you're the Republicans, I mean, if you're the Trump team, and you're the kind of the uh, top of the totem pole when it comes to the Republican Party, I mean, I don't see the need in trying to reach out. I mean, I would make no overture. I would run my campaign uh, because it doesn't mean I mean, if, if 10, 12, 15, that's my number. Now, once again, I don't know why that's my number. Something tells me if 23% of the voters identified via exit polling this past Saturday as moderate or liberal, that doesn't mean that 23% aren't going to vote for Donald Trump. And they're trying to say, well, 40% voted for Haley. What more proof do you need? Well, I mean, it's her home state. Trump may not be your first choice. I think Charles last week said, you know, as much as I want Trump to win, I mean, if Trump goes to jail, if Trump has some unexpected event happen and Nikki ends up being the nominee, I mean, reluctantly, most Trumps, a lot of, I don't say most because I don't know, but a lot of Trump voters will go vote for Nikki Haley because they think she's better than Joe Biden. There's a little, the Trump voter is less arrogant 
about how important their vote is than some of the Haley voters are. I mean, there's some moral, I don't know, some morality connected to this. Like, you know, I am not going to vote for Donald Trump under any circumstance. Well, it's easy to say that when you don't think he'll win. And all of a sudden he wins. Do you have a duty to the Republican Party? Guess what? I can't answer that for you. And really and truly, I don't concern myself much with whether or not you're going to vote for Donald Trump. He's going to be the nominee. If you are a Republican, you will have a choice to make. Do I, as a Republican, go vote for the Republican nominee that I'm not very crazy about? Or am I arrogant or moral enough? I mean, maybe there's some people out there that moral who find it, you know, kind of a, um, I don't know, an assault on their integrity by going to the poll and voting for Donald Trump. There's a lot in there. And there'll be a lot more in there as we get closer to Super Tuesday. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Let's establish two facts. You ready? There will be a number of traditional Republican voters who don't go back and vote for Donald Trump. That is true. I mean, that's undeniable. I mean, you're a moron to believe that some of these people don't mean what they say. That number's not 23. That number is not 40. That number is going to be in somewhere closer to 12, 13, 14, 15%. To me, you got to model that number. You got to build a machine that, that accepts that 15% of Republican voters aren't coming to back, coming back to vote for our guy. So where do we make it up? Where do we find other voters? I want to kind of get in the weeds on some of the, I'll tell you, Rev, it's interesting when I read some of the exit polling. You know who's a more loyal supporter of Democrats today than African-Americans? College-educated females making over 100. College-educated white females making over $100,000 a year. They are as anti-Trump as any Democrat ever has been. Hmm. College-educated white women making over $100,000 a year uh, tyrannical do-gooders. I don't have any idea. You know, the, the, the morality police don't have any idea. But they've, you know, they, they, they've waned. I mean, they've never been ideologically driven. But they kind of float around as independents, and they'll vote for a Democrat. They'll vote for a Republican. They ain't voting for Trump. I mean, there, there's something about that subset of the electorate. It was in New Hampshire. It was in Iowa. It's in South Carolina. So it's Midwest, Northeast, and South. If you're a college-educated white female, and you're making over $100,000 a year, you got a hard time convincing me that you'll vote for Donald Trump. The only, you ready? This is another oddity of polling. The only college-educated white woman making over $100,000 a year that vote for Donald Trump own their own business. I mean, that, that, that's some, I mean, there's a lot in there, guys. Interesting. I mean, there's a lot in there. I mean, it's, they're, they're more overwhelmingly opposed to Trump then African Americans are supportive of Democrats. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. You're on. I want to congratulate you on asking the question that uh, the Washington and New York intelligentsia would not ask. <laughs> I think uh, uh, Haley's uh, vote gets mighty thin if you call out all the Democrats that voted for her and uh, the uh, and uh, the. People, there, there's a certain number of Trump voters that will not vote for Haley. 
It, that's true also. So her support gets mighty thin if you take out the Democrats and take out the Never Haley uh, voters. But uh, she's, uh, I, I think she's done a lot to straighten up her act. She's got the airbrushed makeup and everything. And uh, got a good makeup artist or someone showed her how to put on makeup properly. And uh, that so she's out there and she's going to try and uh, get a little bit more money and damage Trump. But I don't think she'll do it. I think she's just uh, 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 she's it's small potatoes compared to the race. And uh, they've got it. They've got it made. But I want to congratulate you on asking the question that uh, these uh, uh, big guys in uh, Washington and New York would not ask. What is that? It, it was like how how thin uh, is Haley's? Uh, gotcha! Vote? I got you! I got you! I got you! I got you! I, I'm sorry, Mike. I didn't. I had a brain fade there for a second. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. See, and that's what I mean. There's no polling. I mean, exit poll after exit poll. Twitter after I mean, tweet after tweet after tweet. Story after story after story. It's about what is Trump going to do if all these Haley supporters don't vote for for Donald Trump? I mean, there are smart people out there saying dumb things. I mean, it's dumb to make an assumption that Haley got 40% of Republican, excuse me, yeah, Republican voters. She, Trump won the Republican voter about 75-25. I mean, that, that's pretty close. I mean, I've seen a poll 72-28. I've seen a poll 76-20-24. I mean, I've argued, and, and I think I underestimated this. I've said that America First is about two-thirds of the GOP base. It may be closer to three-fourths than, than two-thirds. Um, but, but then you've got these... These self-identified uh, moderates and liberals that voted for Nikki. I'll give you another kind of, a, I saw this number. Guess what Nikki won? Guess how bad Nikki Haley beat voters who identify as Democrat. Not moderate, not liberal. Voters who identify as Democrat. Guess what Nikki beat Donald Trump by? I mean, it's not 80-20. I mean, it's 60-40. Oh really? Yeah, Trump gets a lot of crossover support. I mean, America That's first. That's not what I thought not, you were going to say. But I mean, America first. He doesn't win the liberal vote. He doesn't win the never Trump vote. And there's a difference, I think, in some of the Democrat vote and the never Trump vote. There are more never Trumpers. Well, there are as many never Trumpers in our party as there are in their party. I mean, at least they're voting on some ideology. I mean, some belief they have. I mean, they believe that you know Republicans want to constrict government. Democrats want to expand government in their heart. They believe an expansion of government is best to level the playing field. So they vote for the Democrat. I respect that. I mean, I disagree with it. I think it puts us in a dangerous, on a dangerous course, heading toward a dangerous place. But I respect a liberal Democrat who says, hey, man, I get you want less government. I just think we need more. I mean, that's a fundamental debate we've had since Hamilton and Jefferson. But there are as many never Trump voters in the Republican Party as there are in the Democrat. And I think that number's somewhere around 12 to 15%. And instead of trying an all-hands-on-deck approach to luring the 15% back into the poll, let's go find new voters. I mean, let's go find, I mean, I told you a week or so ago that I've read and understand that some of the Trump team believe there are 4.5 million low propensity, non-regular, non-participating voters, I mean, to, the varying levels of them not giving a rat's rear end. I mean, some just absolutely don't care. Others, 
uh, they might need a little coaxing into, into caring. But they believe, the Trump team believes, there's 4.5 million non-college-educated white voters in seven swing states that are in theirs. I mean, they, if, they, if we can get them to the poll, they're voting for Trump. I mean, there's no doubt about it, 4.5 million. Well, let me think about it, guys. We're t- see, we get consumed, and I do. I mean, I'm guilty of this as you are. 40%, 23%. I mean, you know, 19%, 60 to 40. Did he overperform, underperform? At the end of the day, it's 75, 80, 90,000 voters in six states. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what matters. I mean, if, if Trump underperforms with Republicans in California, who cares? If Trump underperforms a bit in South Carolina, who cares? I'll tell you this, because I've done the math. If Donald Trump is not the nominee and his voters don't come back out and support Nikki Haley, Haley is in a dogfight in South Carolina. South Carolina's not Wyoming. I mean, South Carolina has a 34% BVAP, black voting age population. Wyoming doesn't have that. I mean, Democrats vote historically 90% for the Democrat. If the Trump voter protested the 2024 presidential election because Donald Trump was not on the ballot, Nikki Haley may lose her home state twice. Once in a primary, once in a general election. That's the media story. Wow. I mean, that, that's the story of the media, but they're trying to tell you how many Haley supporters won't vote for Trump. Ask the question, how many Trump supporters will stay home if Haley's the nominee? That's the game changer. I mean, that, that is the absolute game changer of a number if indeed that turns out to be the case. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. If I'm Trump, I don't bring up the name Haley ever again. I mean, I just don't. I move on. It's a general election. He'll win overwhelmingly in these states, um, in these uh, Super Tuesday states. Uh, I would imagine he'll win some by larger margins, and I'm talking about some of the southern states, some of the Midwestern states. He'll struggle a bit in Vermont, I would imagine. Colorado's kind of a wild card. But, I mean, it's it's over. I mean, he's going to be the nominee. They've got to decide, is their strategy to try to reach out to these, you know, the Republicans who have publicly said and privately that under no condition will I vote for Donald Trump? Or do they go find out, you know, where the others are? I mean, I think growing the party is going to be more difficult finding, I mean, I'm talking about the consulting class, the insiders, the establishment, uh, you know, those who believe, I, I think, the tyrannical do-gooders, you know, I think mean, you have a hard time convincing them. I mean, and it's not, it's not, I mean, in a weird way, it's arrogance. It's, you know, they're, they're arrogant. They really doubled down to begin with by saying this guy doesn't have a life shelf. I mean, it's crazy to believe he can win in 16. He does. Well, I mean, he lost in 20. That's the end of it. He announces he's running again. They look foolish. I mean, they really think about it. I mean, if you're never Trumper, you look pretty foolish. To be honest, I mean, you've got an opinion. I don't have any idea how sincere it is. I'm not trying to be judgmental about whether your opinion is serious. You have a right to your opinion, just like I have a right to mine. But but I, I give opinions a lot over the airways. That's different than, than most of you who have opinions. You don't you don't give your opinion over the airways. And my opinion is there are a lot of butthurt Republicans who try to convince the world that he would lose in 16. There was nothing to see here. I mean, he's a carnival barker. He's a con man. It's crazy to believe he's legitimately a candidate for president. He wins. He goes from 61 or 2 million to 75 million votes in 2020. I mean, there are a lot of questions 
that reasonable people have about what happened in 2020. I've never said the election was stolen, so don't accuse me of that. I do believe there were a lot of things that I've had yet to, I mean, I've yet to have explained to me, but again, in 24, he announces he's running, but Ron DeSantis is in, Nikki Haley's a good candidate. You know, we got all these other candidates that'll beat Trump. I mean, people who have tired of the annex and the attitude and the demeanor, and nobody has. So all of a sudden, you have been, you've never been right about Trump. I mean, when you really think about it, the never-Trumper has one thing in common. I mean, they're never right. They're always wrong. I mean, maybe there's a moral conviction. Maybe it's kind of a self-indulging arrogance. I don't have any idea what motivates people to be what they are, and I know good and decent people who are never-Trumpers. I mean, I've got, I mean, everybody listening to my voice today knows a never-Trumper. I mean, you've got a never-Trumper in your, in your voice, and I don't stop inviting somebody to a tailgate because they're a never-Trumper. You're entitled to be a never-Trumper. But you're wrong a lot more than you're right. And this latest, I don't know, this latest data point that they're trying to make an argument on behalf of that 40% of Republican primary voters, you know, didn't want Donald Trump to be the nominee, that's just fundamentally dishonest. I mean, that's not politics. That's just dishonest. Trump won Republican primary voters 75-25. I don't know anybody that is at any point in time had the support in a primary of 75% of his genuine and real voters. Now we got moderates and liberals. You got Democrats crossing over. We have an open primary. Guess what? They're entitled to do that. But the never Trumper has been wrong a lot more than they've been right. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Think we got a special guest here in just a couple of minutes. She's not on the phone yet, but Ashley Smith-Thomas has been with us before. I like to hear these alternate perspectives. I hear a lot. I mean, I, I mean, I know what I think, and I know what I believe, and I know what I feel happened um, Saturday, but at times I like hearing from other voices and other folks who consider themselves to have a degree of expertise. I mean, I think I've got a degree of expertise. I didn't say a degree in expertise. I've got a degree of expertise in, uh, in what happens in South Carolina relating uh, to politics. And it's kind of interesting um, as, as you read Twitter and some of the other storylines, I mean, you know, what are this, I mean, the, the pervasive talking point that I've heard, I mean, and it matters. I mean, ref, to some degree it matters. And I mean, we were very fortunate to have on Thursday and Friday, Robert Cahalia Trafalgar Thursday, and President Trump actually called into the show on Friday, not because of me and Red, because of you, the voters, and I guess mm-hmm. that last plea. Um, Robert of Trafalgar had always modeled, and we talked privately about some of this, he'd always modeled a percentage of crossover vote. But there's always a percentage of crossover vote, and we always felt the number of crossovers, as the number of crossovers increases, Trump's margin decreases. So if we had it at 62.38, and there are, we go from 18% crossover to 21.23% crossover, it gets closer to 60.40. But I think it played out about like what we said it would. I mean, someone, everybody that asked me, Man on the street asked me, hey, what do you think happens? Trump 60-40. I mean, that's just where we are. Now, here's what nobody's talking about. Trump had 60% of the vote in the Republican primary. He got about 75% of the GOP vote against a former governor, a recent and former governor of said state, who spent $16 million in our state, and Trump kind of sort of took a pass. I mean, I think he spent about $1.8 million 
dollars in South Carolina. That's what I think are the, some of the takeaways, and we'll get into the minutia of the um, of this past Saturday. But a political strategist and founder and CEO of Freedoms Fund USA, Ashley Smith Thomas, is with us. Ashley, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So, from the outside looking in, what did you make of our conservative Republican primary Saturday? That's such a great question. I mean, listening to you um, before introducing to me, I completely agree with you. This whole 60-40 model. I think you know when you look at what was happening in South Carolina, it was inevitable that Trump was going to get it. I mean, we've been watching polls for quite some time, and it showed that Trump was going to be the winner of South Carolina. What I think is interesting is that. You know, when we watch it on Saturday, the South Carolina primary and Trump's showdown with Nikki Haley, and like as you mentioned, being the former governor of South Carolina, I believe that the people have spoken and that they had chosen Trump over Haley even in her own home state. And when you look at the Associated Press, Trump came in at 59.8 percent. He gained 47 delegates while Haley came in at 39.5% and only gained three delegates. And so in order to become the Republican candidate to win the nomination, you need uh, 1,215 delegates, in which Trump has 110, Haley only has 20. And so what is interesting is when you look at this track record so far, Trump has won the nomination or the primary, excuse me, in such as Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and now South Carolina. And I know that reports indicate that Haley, she's now heading to Michigan, where GOP primary voters will have their say next Tuesday, because next Tuesday, March 5th, is going to be Super Tuesday, which all eyes are on that. And it's expected already that Trump is even going to seal the deal in those primaries as well. And so when you look at what's taking place and the fact that Nikki had failed in her own state, but she can't even secure the nomination in South Carolina, um, what I find really interesting is is that um, it makes it clear that she does not have a path to victory. And I think that's what the American people, if, Hillary, if, if Nikki Haley really believes that she can win in this whole race, then I guess what she really needs to really be coming out with is what's her clear path to victory, because right now she doesn't have one. And I think that's what the American people need to hear if she still plans on staying in the race, even post the Super Tuesday. Very well explained. Ashley, thank you for your time. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. You know, when there's just, there's never been my damn sheet away, but we got another <laughs> I guess what you were doing there. Yeah, I got another guest here. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> no. yeah. oh, I'm, ready for, I'm ready for the show to be over, Josh. I'm ready for the show to be over yeah, at 712. He took his, his rundown sheet. Like and I'm just, going home. Yeah, just threw it in the trash. <laughs> and then he realized it and just kind of stopped well, I mean, and but, 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 went over to the trash Nikki's can. Nikki's never had a path forward. <laughs> that was funny. I mean, she's never had a path to win the nomination. I mean, you've, you've got to really ask yourself now. I think Nikki's done, done permanent damage to her brand in 2028. I mean, I got in a bit of a Twitter spat yesterday, not not, uns- not disrespectful to one another, about, you know, Nikki's future, and I just don't see it. I don't know how you offend 75% of the GOP electorate. I mean, is your path forward hoping and wishing and crossing your fingers that an abnormally high of liberals and moderates vote in a Republican primary? I mean, let, let's say she's right. Let's say that she can convince an abnormal number of liberals and moderates to vote in Republican primaries all around the country. I mean, okay, it goes from 62-38 to 60-40. I mean, that's kind of when an abnormal number of self-identified liberals and moderates vote in a Republican primary 
you gain about two or three percentage points. So instead of getting beat by 24 or 5, you get beat by 20 or 21. I mean, that's the path forward. Now, now the Koch brothers pulled the plug yesterday. I mean, the Americans for Prosperity, they're not spending money any longer. Um, I mean, I would imagine, once again, there's this moral conviction. There's this self-indulging arrogance that some people have. And I really believe, Rev, there's a human impulse in all of us. We don't like being wrong. We just don't like being wrong, especially those of us who have a high opinion of our own opinion. I mean, we don't like being wrong. I don't like being wrong. You don't like being wrong. Nobody likes being wrong. But I think the quicker you admit you're wrong, the easier it is to save face. And I think when you're prominent, when people look up to you and your opinion and they pay attention to what you say, and you say Trump can't win in 16 and he does, and he can't win in 20 and he almost does again, and he can't win in 24 and he's winning the nomination, going away like gangbusters, I just think there's a kind of a blind arrogance that most people have about themselves and their opinion, and it's, it's got to double and triple and quadruple down. And, and you got to see him destroyed because why? Because you said to begin with he was not formidable, and he's been far more, far more influential in Republican politics than you ever imagined he would be. Now, some, and I think this is fair, and, and I want to I quantify, for some, he just ain't your cup of tea. I get it. I mean, I understand for some... He's just not your cup of tea. And I try my damnedest to respect those people. I really do. I've got about three friends in my universe that, that in all honesty and sincerity, just don't find him to be their cup of tea. And they're very sincere. And they're good people. That they're, they're genuinely good people. And we need them in the Republican Party. He just ain't their cup of tea. But I think the majority of resistance is more about you than it is about him. I'm sorry. I just believe that. You said he couldn't win, and he did. You said he couldn't win again, and he almost did. And there's some question about what happened. And if you don't believe there's some question, listen to those two words. If you don't believe there's some question about the 2020 presidential election, you're just not being intellectually honest with yourself. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on. Kid, uh, it don't make no sense to, to destroy yourself the way she's doing. But I got a couple of questions. What is... How do you think Nikki Haley would do against Donald Trump in a general election? And my other question is, just how smart do you have to be to be president? We've had some presidents like Jimmy Carter, Barack Obama, and Bill Clinton, that you were told they were geniuses. And then you've had other presidents that just come across as not too smart. Um, Donald Trump, to me, he's reason talking down to us because he's a genius or either he's just average intelligence and maybe that's what you need. I don't know. But uh, if you were to, like you say, if you were to strip it down and just have no picture whatsoever of Donald Trump or anyone else show what happened during his four years, especially if you take COVID out, the guy did a pretty dang old good job. Now, to me, he spent too much money. But, you know, we all let that slide that we shouldn't have. But I wonder how Nikki Haley would do against Donald Trump in a general election. And I wonder just how smart you have to be to be president. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. I'm going to level with you. I've not told Josh or Rev this. I thought Trump was flat Friday. Oh, when, he, when he called into I the show? I thought he was flat. I mean, I, I thought it was just not. I mean, to me, it was, um, it was it sound tired. 
it sounded uh, like like somebody early in the morning formulaic a little bit of that yeah yeah i mean it just it didn't i, I don't know i mean it, you know I, i'm 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 talking to the president josh said man i got nervous and i understand that i mean you're waiting on the president of the united states or former president's voice to come over a phone that you hold in your hand um i mean that's that's a pretty awesome experience for josh to go through and i'm happy you were able to do that but once he got on the phone I mean, it just—it was not inspiring. It was not motivational. It was—it uh, it was kind of a rambling, a little bit flat. I mean, it would have been like um, I went to a concert at the Performing Arts Center, and I liked the guy's music, and I left there going like, "Wow!" I mean, it didn't feel like he gave it his best effort. I mean, he maybe had a fight with his wife. I don't know. Maybe he didn't feel good. Maybe you know, hungry. I, there's a million reasons he could have been flat, but he came across to me. Saturday morning is flat, or excuse me, um, Friday morning as a bit flat, not dismissive, and it got a little more engaging. Um, but I think Breeze asked a very interesting point. I mean, I, I, I've been told all my life that it's the hardest job in the world. Uh, maybe it is. I don't know. I've never tried it. Uh, Luke to the gutter is pretty easy. Uh, I don't know how hard <laughs> being president of the United States is. Um, but I've been told that you know Richard Nixon was a genius. I mean, he was an academic and a scholar, and, I mean, his IQ is off the charts. And then Reagan, I mean, we know the, the, the media narrative on Reagan, not very smart, you know, not well read, went to Guilford College, um, you know, was a broadcaster for baseball, and then in the movies. I mean, how smart can you be to like baseball and the movies? I mean, you know, you see where I'm headed, probably watch Smokey and the Bandit. Um, <laughs> and I, Trump doesn't impress me to be some business genius by any stretch. I think what Donald Trump has is the, well, I mean, in his business life, I think it's about being bold. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the future belongs to the bold. You've heard that. I've heard that. A lot of us have heard that. But I think Donald Trump's world has required him to navigate a lot of complexities and figure out a way to make them simple. The simpler he can make all these complexities, and I'm talking about New York City Council, New York County Council, um, you know, uh, the Manhattan Visitors Bureau. I mean, there's no telling how many of those organizations he's had to deal with to get his business where it is today. And I don't know that that requires high IQ. I mean, you're not playing Jeopardy. You're, you're, you're not, you know, auditioning for a membership in Mensa. I mean, you're trying to get crap done. And I think getting crap done very often doesn't require high and high levels of intelligence. I'm not saying, I mean, Trump is well-educated. I mean, he's an Ivy League guy. Went to UPenn, went to Wharton School of of uh, finance, I mean, he's a highly educated man. I just don't think when you hear him speak, you think, wow, that sounds like an Ivy Leaguer. I mean, that sounds like a business guy. That sounds like kind of a throwback to days gone by. And I think there's beauty in that. I mean, I think that Americans, may, maybe consciously, maybe subconsciously, or have a burning desire to hear somebody speak to them in a normal sort of way. And I think Nikki Haley sound unbelievably robotic. I mean, it, it, it's like, wow, you know, um, wag that finger at exactly the right moment. Look to my left. Look to my right. Accentuate the exact word. Pause. Cadence. Wow. I mean, it, it's almost like somebody gave her a mo movie script. And, you know, remember when Hillary read Paul's? I mean, remember that? Hillary's reading a speech on a teleprompter, yep. and Hillary actually verbalized Paul's. Mm-hmm. And that's what Nikki sounds like to me. And Trump never sounds that way. I thought he was flat Friday morning. 
but he didn't sound auditioned. I mean, when he said, it was kind of funny when he said, I told Tim, Tim, you do better for me than you do for yourself, you know, and Nikki was okay. I mean, Nikki was okay. She's all right. Um, and, and then he, somebody actually confided in you that he did it for Henry. I mean, the one thing that I've said over and over and over again, Trump didn't care anything about Nikki Haley one way or another, but Henry had been good to Trump. The, you know, the, the former Lieutenant governor of South Carolina was the first statewide office holder to endorse Donald Trump for president in 16. And then Trump kind of lives in that payback sort of world. And he even admitted, I mean, some of these, I'm um, crazy. I try to, you know, mimic Henry McMaster and Trump basically said, that's exactly how it went down. I mean, that's exactly, he did. you know, Henry didn't want to go to Washington. He wanted to be governor. So we gave Nikki something to do. And I, I just think the beauty in him confiding in you, you know, the consumer of political news that, yeah, that's why I did it. Of course, that's why you know, that's why he did it, but nobody else would say it except Trump. And I think that's why he is the force du jour in American politics today. Take a break back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Um, the Americans for prosperity, pulling the money from Nikki Haley will probably allow uh, yeah, allow some of the Super Tuesday states to be genuinely more reflective of where the Republican primary is. It's, I mean, it's, it's 65, 35, maybe 70, um, 30. I don't think Trump gets every Republican vote. I mean, nobody be, I mean, you'd be crazy to believe that. And I think, you know, of the 25 or 30% that would rather him not be the nominee, half of those come back. That's how I get to my 12 to 15 number. I think Trump has the support of roughly 70% of the GOP primary voter. Of the 30% that he does not have the support of, I think one half of those come back. They're not that proud. They're not that arrogant. They, they, you know, he ain't their cup of tea, but there's a loyalty they have to the Republican brand, limited government, conservatism, um, Trump's not going to stop them from executing their political beliefs. Plus, you got a demented, you know, old being led around liberal on the on the other side. That's the um, I mean, I, you know, once again, the more people tell you they're they're not supporting Trump, the more people say publicly, you know, on Twitter and Facebook and some of the and I watch a lot of this. I try not to get in the middle of it, but I watch and listen and pay attention. Um, I mean, the more I mean, the, 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 those folks are just very, there's an entitlement about their opinions and I respect it. I mean, I do. I think some people articulate, I'm trying to think about, that would be an interesting question. Who articulates never Trump better than anybody? I mean, I think I can articulate Trumpism with the best of them. But if when you, when you say that, are you talking about somebody who would have kind of an intellectual approach to that argument, as opposed to just being somebody we would say has Trump derangement okay, syndrome. Here's what I'm going saying. to tell you, you know, the, no, the no, buzzwords. No, no, here's what I'm saying. Okay. You and I, you and I have agreed that the next phase of America first has to be some sort of intellectual underpinning. What are the policies? If you don't like NAFTA, what's better? If you don't like globalism, what's better? If you don't like, you know, some of these foreign wars, what's better? What, what you see what I'm saying? I mean, contract with America. What is the America first contract with America? What does it stand for? What is just, what are its priorities? But, I mean, you and I have agreed that someone who gives the intellectual, I mean, I think Peter Thiel does it better than anybody, but um, he could kind of be the OG of America first, but he's a, an intellect. I mean, he's a very a, a competent and intelligent man. When, when Breeze is talking about intelligence, 
I mean, that's that's what Breeze is referring to. I mean, nobody could deny Peter Thiel's intelligence. I mean, he couldn't get elected dog catcher. But you can't say, hey, man, that guy's not as smart as I thought. No, I mean, Thiel's an incredibly bright and smart man from an in, kind of an intellectual perspective. But here's the point I'm trying to make, Rev. You and I have kind of landed, and I think I've coached, coached you in, not coached, coached you into believing that the person who probably gives the best intellectual underpinning to America first is J.D. Vance. And, and maybe sure. it's because he came from Appalachia. He graduated from Yale. I mean, he, he was in money management and venture capital. And, you know, you got to be smart to do those things, Rev. You know how those people are. I mean, they're smart. The, the point I'm trying to make on the Never Trumper, there's somebody out there that could give an intellectual argument opposing America first. And when you oppose America first, you're opposing America, make America great again in the way that Donald Trump uh, says to make it. So, so that's the point I'm trying to make. The, the, the rants on Facebook and, and Twitter, I mean, they're interesting. I guess they're therapeutic and cathartic for those who have a, a disdain for this guy. And I, once again, I, it doesn't bother. You're entitled to that. I mean, I think it's, it's just fun. I mean, it's fun to watch somebody who really supports Trump and somebody who really doesn't. You and I have some friends who over the weekend got into a bit of a brouhaha one with another. Mm-hmm. I'm not offended that one person has that opinion, another person has the other opinion. Isn't that kind of the beauty of how we got where we are? The point I'm trying to make is most of the arguments against Trump are a bit irrational to me. And I've tried to be rational in my support of Trump. I try to give consideration to those who don't support Trump the benefit of the doubt. But to say that 40% a Republicans would rather have somebody else like that's some new found phenomenon. I mean, there's always, when, when there are multiple candidates, there's always different choices for people to make. So I accept that. But Donald Trump has about 70% of the Republican base in his corner. Maybe as much as 75%. That's a lot. I mean, that's an enormous percentage of Republicans that want to see this very unique candidate carry this very unique agenda uh, to the next phase. Let's go to the phone. Michael and Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Michael. You're on the air. Hey, uh, excuse me. Ken, you ran for statewide office, and I believe Charleston has always been the country club Republican types down there. Would you agree with that? I would. Okay. So I remember Rush Limbaugh used to always say that those type of Republicans – were embarrassed about the like pro-life wing of the Republican Party, and I saw that like some precincts on Kiowa Island voted like eighty plus percent for Nikki Haley. Do you do you still think that maybe half of those will come back and vote for Trump in November? Yes, I mean I, I do. I think roughly half. Now that means half will not. You know, but but, but what, continue. I'm sorry. But, no, I'm just saying, but well, why would they not? I mean, we've all, the, I would say we as in the, the generic base of the GOP, I voted for Bob Dole. I voted for Bush. I voted for Romney and McCain. They need to get in line and do their part. That's See, I would, saying. well, I mean, and, 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 thank you for the call. Appreciate it. See, I would be, I'd be reluctant to say get in line. Because isn't that what our complaint is? I mean, don't the majority of Trumpsters, I mean, at the center of your criticism of the establishment, you were told to get back in line and shut up, and you did. I mean, Dole's the guy, McCain's the guy, Bush is the guy, Bush is the guy, Romney's the guy, get in line. See, I'd be very hesitant 
And and but but I, I want to go back to the point about Kiwa Island. There will be an attempt by the national media. I actually wrote it down this morning. And then these are I mean this is me brainstorming here. There will be an attempt, and I guess the Kiwa Island crowd would kind of exemplify this. That will try to make the campaign about you know the environment, racism, abortion, foreign policy. The Trump crowd, and he's got good people around him this time, need to not allow the campaign to be about those sorts of issues. The public genuinely doesn't care as a matter of politics about that. I mean, they have a strong opinion on the environment. They have a strong opinion on racism, abortion, and foreign policy. But they have a stronger opinion on inflation and health care and crime and immigration. And I think the Trump team are going to have to forcefully. I mean, they're going to fight the media with everything they've got. I mean, I turned on the Sunday morning shows yesterday. The day after the South Carolina primary, the majority of conversation is the Alabama abortion law, the about Alabama court ruling on um, on abortion. And then they're talking about, you know, other things. And they're talking about, it's just, they're going to do everything they can to propagandize the debate to be about something other than what the general public want the debate uh, to be about. But I do believe that of the 30% who don't want Trump to be the nominee, one half will come back home. I mean, that, I, for what reason? I mean, it'll be a million different reasons. There'll be a loyalty to the calls. There'll be an acceptance of, hey, you know, I've got to pick the guy for a long time. But but I just think we got to be reluctant in suggesting that people get back in line and do their part. That's what pissed us off. I mean, when we saw jobs leaving, when we saw the Midwest deindustrialized, when we saw intervention and endless wars, and, and, and you know, a lot of working-class Americans kind of scratched their head and said, I don't know, man. I mean, something doesn't make sense about these trade policies. Something doesn't make sense about these these wars and incursions we find ourselves in. I just get back in line and do your part. I'd, I'd, I'd rather not be on the other end of that get back in line and do your part. Some in Kiowa will get back in line and do their part because they think that's the thing to do. Some won't. Trump can win without 15% of the base. He can't win without 30. There are not enough non-college educated white voters still out there, and that's his bread and butter. We know that he's doing much better with African-American males. I'll tell you something else, Josh, and some of the exit polling I read, non-college educated under the age of 29. Trump did exceptionally well. He didn't do as well. He didn't get killed. I mean, I thought he'd get killed with college educated under the age of 29. He didn't. I mean, he lost, but he didn't get killed. I mean, he kind of held his own there. Uh, Males in particular. It's really turning in to a male-female sort of dynamic. I mean, once again, the, the, if you think African-Americans vote Democrat, they don't vote as Democrat as college-educated white females making over $100,000 a year oppose Trump. That's crazy to me, but that's true. I mean, Democrats to the tune of about 90% support, excuse me, African-American voters to the tune of about 90% support Democrats, a higher percentage of white college-educated females who make over $100,000, uh, look at the Kiowa crowd, oppose Trump than African-Americans vote Democrat. That's a, that, that number jumped off the page at me. The only white female making over $100,000 a year supporting Donald Trump on their own business.
I mean, that's in essence what it boils down to. That's some of the exit polling that I've read. Now, make take it for what it's worth. Is it is it an exact science? Of course not. But it's as good as we can do and find out or in finding out who's thinking what. Take a break. Back in a few. Okay, we're going to wait now. The point that I'm trying to make, I don't think I did a good job of the last segment. I know I did. I'll be trying to explain it. We've agreed that the initial motivation to be a supporter of Trump is blow it up, right? I mean, we, we need to, we, you can't tweak around the edges. You can't have um, a blue ribbon committee that say, okay, government lost its way. Let's get it back on track. Let's hire all these bureaucrats and former government agents. And let's, let's admit, let's do a mea culpa. We screwed it up. Too much globalism, too much interventionism, too much open borders. We'll, we promise uh, we're asking for forgiveness and we'll fix everything that we, you think we, we screwed up. We agree that we don't trust that. So we want some wrecking ball. We want a Molotov cocktail. We want a middle finger to the man, so to speak. So we've, we've all, I think most of us have accepted, yeah, that's kind of why I'm for Trump. I mean, I don't know if I can intellectually defend it, but yeah, that's what, but, but I think those of us who try to think past that go, okay, let's, let's tear it apart. I mean, let, let's destroy the status quo. Let's win, baby, win, and then what? And I think we've argued, or I have, that that's when a J.D. Vance, that's when a Rand Paul, that's when a Peter Thiel, a more thoughtful policy agent, somebody who understands the nuances that got us where we are and how do we get on a different path and how do we offer up an agenda of the American people that reflects something after you blow up things that you don't think serve the American people. I've not heard anybody intellectualize opposition to Trump. I mean, it's all, yeah. he ain't make, my cup of tea. Make a good point. He ain't my cup of tea. Well, and mostly it's Fair enough. it's it's a TDS-type response. You say that because you're Trump supporter. Right. But as opposed to, I mean, I I haven't seen many people in the middle that, that would say, well, I just, you know, I just don't think he's the right thing, and here's why. I, I've not but, heard but, that but you, argument. But you've heard a lot of people say things like, I don't know, man. I mean, the government seems broken. I'm not trusting that we can kind of, you know, nip around the edges and fix this thing. I don't care for his antics. I don't care for his demeanor. But I think the cause is bigger than that. I mean, you've heard a lot of that. I've heard a lot of that. I got a lot of friends in my world that say, man, I wish I had another racehorse. I mean, I really believe we need to just kind of blow it up. And I wish I had somebody more acceptable. But he's the only, I mean, I, I, I put on Twitter one day, or it might have been Facebook. I mean, I'd rather have Seattle Sleuth than secretary or Secretariat. But he's the only racehorse I got. I mean, if you want genuine reform, if you want fear in the hearts and minds of bureaucrats in our nation's capital, he's your only choice. There is no other alternative than Donald Trump. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. You're on. Uh, good morning, fellas. Uh, we got to cut. We got to give Trump uh, cut him a little slack, Ken. I, I think on Friday morning, you know, he has a right to be kind of exhausted with all the crap he's had to put up with. Agree. Totally uh, agree. Past week. Um, I agree with you, too. The Atlanta race turned out to be a lot better than I thought it was when that wreck happened on lap two and it wiped out. Well, it didn't wipe them out, but it potentially could have. Uh, I said, here we go again, pack racing. But it turned out to be a pretty good pretty good race. And the neat thing about Atlanta, it seemed like if you got pushed out, you didn't go all the way to the back of the line like you do at uh, Talladega or, um, or at Daytona. And that got me thinking the other night as I was watching uh, the, the results come in. I don't know if you saw this on Fox with Martha and Brett, but they had Ari Flasher on there. And um, he got all excited uh, 
uh, as he was talking about uh, Nikki's speech, he said a light bulb has just gone off, and she did not mention the Republican Party uh, at all in her speech, and I believe she is saying she's staying in because she's going to try to come up the middle. And you know, Ken, she said all along, or I guess she uses a stat, that 70% of the country don't want either one of these two guys to be the president. And um, so that kind of light bulb went off with me. You know, they, they pushed her out. She's in the middle. But rather than going back, she thinks she can move forward. And he said, I heard her saying she could potentially run as, as a no-labels candidate. And, uh, of course, the news about Koch brothers giving up on her uh, uh, is news today. But uh, what, what, what do you think about that? Do you think Nikki would continue on as possibly – uh, a no-labels-type candidate. Now, I know there are laws that prevent those sore loser laws. I heard Brett mention about being able to be on a ballot in states when you've declared for a party. Any thoughts about that? Thank you, Sam. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I think Nikki Haley is one of the few people who think only and exclusively about Nikki Haley. I mean, I'm not saying she doesn't love her family. I, I would never suggest that. But I think everything, not most things, not 99% of the, I think everything Nikki Haley has ever done in her political life has been about Nikki Haley. There's never been any consideration given to anything or anybody else. Now you can say, yeah, look where she is. Fair enough. I mean, there's some that will do anything. There are most that won't. Nikki is one of those who will do anything it takes to keep her names relevant or her name and lights, her status and profile, uh, you know, at the height of whatever political conversation uh, we're talking about, and I'm not I'm not being negative toward Nikki. I mean, I think it is what it is. And I've known a lot of politicos in my life that have some sort of line that says, nah, and I'm good. I don't know that Nikki does. And if there's an opportunity for her to be relevant as a, you know, no labels candidate, she will take them up on that. There's no doubt in my mind. If Nikki Haley believes it's in Nikki Haley's best interest to do something, she's going to do it 100% of the time. Have you thought that through? Sure. What happened? Sure. I, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously bad for Trump. I mean, there's no doubt right. about it. I mean, that, that gives the, the 30% that, that identifies conservative, but, but Trump's the only guy on the ticket. And I say half come back home. Well, I mean, less than half come back home. But, but I want to ask this question because Sam says the middle, where is the middle between intervention and non-intervention? Where is the middle between globalist and non-globalist? Where is the middle between open borders and a strict immigration policy? I mean, where is the middle? What, what, what about Trump's agenda is extreme? I mean, the Biden administration have basically endorsed open borders. That's an extreme position. We don't need a middle-of-the-road answer to that. It's not, I mean, the compromise was a middle-of-the-road answer. no. We need to enforce immigration policy. We have monetary policy. Where is the middle? Is it a half trillion dollars a year we don't have? You see where I'm headed? We, we're buying into this argument. A lot of you aren't, but some are. And I want you to be very careful of this. We're buying into this abnormality of Trump. He's so abnormal, man. I mean, let's get back. You know, make America normal again. Make America great again or make America normal again. Who in the world would choose make America normal again then make America great again. I mean, do you want to be normal or you want to be great? And there's certain things you got to do to be great. One is you close your border. Another is you spend money. You don't spend money you don't have. 
You don't pay people to do nothing. I mean, that that's what makes America great. And those are not extreme. But that's... but no, it's normal. I mean, we we've created this philosophy of normalcy that says, well, I mean, we can't ever secure the border, so let's at least limit the number to five thousand a day. If they come seven consecutive days, then we you know we close the border. No. I mean, the only way to make America great again is to enforce the laws we have includes closing the border. I mean, to make America normal again. So so let's say Haley's a make America normal again candidate. And as part of making America normal again, we just keep spending a trillion dollars a year we don't have. I mean, do you think Trump's a shock to the system? You wait until we have to deal with the debt. You ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, you wait. You wait until the government decides in its infinite wisdom that we can't continue to spend a trillion dollars a year we don't have. You think Trump is a shock to the political sphere? No. I mean, he, what, what Trump has been is baby crap alongside. I mean, as we've referenced the great Buford T. Justice, but to, to, to the question of will Nikki consider a run as a third-party candidate, even if there's no way that she wins, if it's in Nikki Haley's best interest, She's going to do it every single time. Back in a few. You know, when you really break down the Haley campaign, we may have stumbled on it something a second ago. You got one guy make America great again and one lady make America normal again. That leads me to believe there's a different definition for normal for some of the insiders than what I consider normal to be. It's, they're basically saying keep the fix alive. I mean, make America normal again or make America great again. I mean, if you say that out loud, what camp are you in? Oh, I want to be normal. I want to be great. No, I don't want to be great. I want to be normal. <laughs> I'd rather not be great. I mean, I'd, I'd rather be normal. I'd rather be the um, the guy that played high school football, dabbled a little bit in college, but I don't want to be that first-round draft choice who made millions and millions of dollars, won six Super Bowls, and retired to Florida. I don't want to be that guy. I mean, so let's make America normal again. Let's forget trying to make America great again well, I mean, make America normal again is the, the, the make America normal again crowd say that the make a great, make America great again crowd, you know what they, you know what they're saying, don't you? You know, when blacks were three fifths of a person and women couldn't vote and, you know, white men ruled the world. That's what they mean when they say make America great again. Well, I mean, make America normal again, dog whistle. Who are the supporters of Nikki Haley? The donor class. Did donors get where they are being normal? I mean, did millionaires and billionaires get where they are being normal or being great at whatever it is there? I mean, they're pulling the ladder up, guys. They they enjoyed the benefits of a great America. They don't, they're not real crazy about sharing that benefit of financial reward and, you know, influence and power and all these other sorts of things. So, so really and truly, I mean, that might be an interesting play on that on that dynamic, so Nikki wants to make America normal again. Explain that, Governor Haley. I mean, I know what she means. She'll never say this. She means I like the world where consultants and bureaucrats are in charge. I don't like the empowerment of the average American worker. It, it, it really boils down to, because I read something about, I'm trying to, it wasn't South Carolina primary, it's another primary, but they're talking about, um, I'll try to find the information. Somebody tweeted about a poll that showed Affluent suburbanites, or the college-educated affluent suburbanite says they're not voting for Trump. And they basically, I mean, they, they inferred they've had it with the people that wash their cars and clean their, clean their uh, you know, cut their grass and, 
and I keep their kids. They've had it with those people. I mean, who do you think you are? I mean, do you really believe that you're entitled to as much uh, political influence as I am? Of course you're not. So make America normal again basically means keep the people in charge who are in charge now, and things will run as we see fit, <laughs> and we'll call that normal. There's nothing normal about that. That's one of the most abnormal <laughs> I don't know, scenarios. It's certainly not which, American. Well, I mean, it's absolutely un-American, but that's what they mean. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. The Monday after the Saturday that was the South Carolina Republican primary. And we like to famously say, Iowa dabbles in politics. New Hampshire has a cute little primary. <laughs> it really comes to picking presidents. It's all about the good old Palmetto State because we are eclectic and diverse. We're really not, but we're more eclectic and diverse than we historically have been because of all the growth along uh, the South uh, Carolina coast. Well, they don't call us first in the South for nothing. And we are also known for picking presidents, right? But I mean, as far as the results, I mean, you, this thing kind of ended up like we said it would, I, like I, you predicted. I, I said 60, 40. I mean, I thought Trump wins the Republican vote, 70, 30. I thought he wins the primary 60, 40. I think he won the Republican vote 70-30. He won the, the primary 60-40. So I'm not at all surprised. But there, there's some there's some interesting factoids within that some of the pundits, myself included, will try to toy around with and see if we can read certain things into certain places. Trump is an unbelievably polarizing and motivating figure. Surprise. I mean, nobody would have guessed that, would you? I mean, he motivates for and he motivates against. He does not allow you to be somewhat passive about, about what you think of him when he's on the ballot. Speaking of South Carolina's primary, Fox News Radio's Tanya J. Powers is in New York. Tanya, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. So I'm giving kind of an insider scoop on what I think. What did the country perceive uh, to happen in South Carolina Saturday? Well, I mean, we saw the results, right? Uh, I think one of the most telling things about this is, you know, the if, if people were expecting the Haley campaign to just go, well, that's it. It's been a good run. We're going to pack it up now. They would be mistaken. I mean, she's definitely going to, you know, keep going forward at least. I'm, I'm understanding until Super Tuesday at least. I mean, she keeps announcing, you know, leadership teams and states past Super Tuesday, so who knows. Um I, I can tell you, though, that, you know, some of her financial support has been taken away because um, the Americans for Prosperity folks, which is the political arm of the Koch network, which is pretty powerful, they've said that they're not going to continue uh, to support. Um, they still, you know, say they're going to, you know, stand by, behind their endorsement of Haley, but they have decided to focus their resources where, where they can make a difference. Um, I'm guessing that means putting money towards, you know, Senate and House campaigns and that kind of stuff instead of Haley's bid uh, for president. But, you know, I mean, the endorsement is not is not a small thing, but, you know, it ultimately doesn't take endorsements doing it takes money. Um, so, you know, that's that's that. There's also the announcement that her campaign said in the in the, uh, the Senate in, the, in less than 24 hours after her loss to Trump on Saturday that her campaign had raised a million dollars from grassroots supporters alone. Um, you know, that will obviously help. Uh, will it, you know, will it balance out the other? Probably not. But, you know, who knows? I mean, this is a, a campaign that is, from from what I've seen uh, when I, I went to New, uh, to New Hampshire and 
talked to not only people who were supporters of hers and people who were kind of on the fence as well, but also people who were working with the campaign. These are the people who had, you know, stopped what they were doing in their home state to come to New Hampshire and, you know, knock on doors and put, you know, money and and time and effort behind her campaign. Uh, I don't think that is a small uh, thing. It seems to be the more traditional wing of the Republican Party. It seems to be who her her backers are. The other thing that, and, and this is pretty far out because you've got a lot. There's a long way to go till November. Obviously, if Trump is the nominee, a lot of the Haley people told me, and these are the supporters, the people who had come out to see her, to who supported her. I asked them, "What are you going to do on election day if she is not the nominee?" None of them told me they were going to vote for Trump. That is not a given. In this, in this, and I think that's one of the things not to sort of overlook. I think that the normal thinking is, well, a Republican's a Republican; it's better than a Democrat. I'll vote for the Republican, whoever it is. You know, I've got to get on board. That's not necessarily what these people were telling me at all. Most of them said they would either stay home. I had a couple tell me they would vote vote for Biden over Trump, and they're Haley supporters. So it's not necessarily a given that just because, you know, if he becomes the eventual nominee, he's going to get all of the, her supporters as well. That's that's not a given. Tanya, why wouldn't the media ask Trump supporters if Haley's the nominee, would they vote for Haley? I would ask. I would absolutely ask that question. I mean, that, to me, that's I the most underreported. Haley's I mean, I've read Twitter and I've read a yeah. lot of articles, and I, I just don't, yeah. I mean, I get that. I mean, that, that paints Trump in negative light, and I understand he's not that popular with certain facets of um you know mainstream culture I, I accept that but i've just i'm befuddled that i've not seen a single data point that shows what trump voters would do if haley were the nominee but there's a million out there of what haley <laughs> voters would do if trump's the nominee that just confuses me well it you know it, it i'll just i'll just put it bluntly send me out there and i'll ask i'd love for you to be I out will, because i know you'd ask I will, I will ask the questions that are not the softball popular things to ask of the Trump. You know, I mean, I, I, this is exactly what I did in 2016 and 2020 until, you know, we, we couldn't, you know, go ask anymore. But you know, this is I, I there are a million things I would like to ask Trump voters that, you know, might make them pretty uncomfortable, but that nobody's talking about, you know. Uh, it's just it's kind of the same thing over and over. And honestly, I'm with you. There's a whole lot of stuff I would like to find out. Interesting. Send me one of them Murdoch boys' phone number, and I'll see if I can't get them to sign you. To, 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 I, will, I, I, will, I don't know that it'll work, but I'll, I'll definitely try. Okay. Good deal. Thank you, Tanya. Appreciate your time. Uh-huh. I, I just, uh, for the life of me, I don't understand but, that. But you certainly you do understand well, it because do there it. is a no, pervasive but, 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 narrative. But, okay, let, let, let's go here for a second. Josh, get, get the mic here. So, I mean, I, Trump did better in South Carolina with young voters than I thought he would. I mean, he didn't do great, but he did a little better than I expected him to. I knew he would do okay with uh, with, with with non-college educated young voters under the age of 29. He did real. I mean, he did. I mean, he killed it. I mean, he killed it with non-college educated voters under the age of 29. He did better with college educated, especially males, than I imagined he would. Now, you're not going to really have a, a, a sample on African-American males until we get to the general. I mean, that'll be a great unknown. We can poll. We can say what might happen, what could happen, what would happen. What I don't understand, and I mean this with all sincerity, and, and I think this is the most important discussion 
that America could have with itself. The Trump forces aren't going away. No, but they're not. They're, they're here. They're, they're, they're rabid. Um, but they're not ideologically driven. They don't read the Wall Street Journal, nor do they read the New York Times. They don't read the Atlantic, nor do they read the National Review. I mean, they're fairly neutral in their political experiences. I mean, they're just not, they didn't take polyscience at an Ivy League university and, and page for a set. They're just not. I mean, that's not, that's not reflective of who the Trump world is. So why not go try to find out who they are? Why not go knock on the door at the muffler shop or the construction company or the, or the, the, the company that installs HVACs or builds truck beds? You know who they are. You know exactly who the Trump world is, but you've chosen to be so disinterested. Instead, you've insulted. You've disparaged. You've marginalized. You said you know what they're about. They're about racism and bigotry, and they want to take America back 100 years. But you've not asked them a single question. You've asked every Haley supporter under the sun what they'll do if Trump's the nominee. I've never seen a data point that reflects what Trump voters would do if Haley were the nominee. And I know why, because you're scared to death what that number may be. You're petrified by how big his army is. And I just, for the life of me, as as a younger voter, Josh, Mm -hmm. are, are you offended that the strategy employed by the detractors, the never Trumpers, seems to be to not try and understand, but, but rather insult. Do yeah. You, yeah, do, of course. But, but I mean, well, am, am I, am I correct in my analysis? Do you believe instead of sitting down trying to understand why all these people support this, this unique political disruptor, instead of trying to understand, Hey man, how did you get here? I mean, what happened in your life? What series of events happened in your life that led you to be such a supporter of Donald Trump? No, it's, it's, it's insulting. How many Trumps are, how many Trump supporters are racist? How many are bigots? How many, how many want to take America back a hundred years? I mean, the absurdity of that is, I mean, I'm telling you guys, it's what makes it so intense. And I've never understood that. So so I go on Twitter yesterday and I go on a hundred different websites. I'm exaggerating 20 different websites. And everywhere I look, there's a data point. And the data point shows me what the Haley voters will do. If Trump's the nominee, you crazy hillbillies and hayseeds, you roll the dice with this guy if you'd like it. You'll get exactly what you deserve come November. I've yet to see a single data point that shows if she's the nominee, how many Trump voters stay home. You know what my projection is? She loses her home state in a general. <laughs> think about that. I mean, think about that. She loses her home state in a general if the Trump crowd stay home. South Carolina's not Wyoming. It's got a big African-American population. 34% BVAP. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to get to, you know, a competitive race in South Carolina. And, and I, I, I just don't understand the logic. I understand the anger. I understand the resentment. I understand trying to sell America, make America normal again. I mean, that basically says make America an insider's game again. Make America, put the rig back in place. You know, make sure the working class yes. people don't have any representation. Stop challenging these institutions. Bingo, bingo. I mean, that status quo rules, the ruling class, hierarchy. But, but, but I, I just never understood why there's been no curiosity about how all these damn people 
ended up so opposed to the political establishment. That's the story. I mean, that, that's the only story that really matters. How did we get ourselves as a country to a place where 75 million people believe he's a better option than anybody? I mean, that, that should be the overriding narrative, but we refuse to have that debate, Josh, because they're afraid of the answer. Yeah, I I completely agree. And and I was talking with people over the weekend, especially after the the race on Saturday, and we were talking about how if they had just said, okay, like kind of what Trump expected them to do, if they had just said, okay, we lost, let's let's work together now, things probably wouldn't be as bad as they would like, like as they thought things would be. Like the Honestly, if they had worked with Trump, the swamp would probably still – it would have survived him, I, I do think. It, he is a step in the right direction. It would have been a little but, watered down. Oh, yeah. But, but it would have been in place. They it would have been intact. It would have receded, not completely, and, and I think it would have been good if it did. But I think now they are like they have completely exposed themselves. And, and even the average people, that to, they're not politically minded. They're the Seinfeld watcher, and they're watching from the sidelines – the things that the establishment is doing is catching their attention, and and they're going like, whoa. Well, I mean, I, 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 I've argued the day that Trump became inevitable was the day we bailed the banks out. I mean, th- th- there's a fair debate to be had about TARP. There's a fair debate to be had about bailouts. And there's a fair debate to be about who's to blame in the financial meltdown of 2007, 8, 9. There's a lot of complex conversation to have around that. But I'm telling you the day Trump became one of the favorites to become president of the United States when the Seinfeld watcher saw men with guns stand at the gates of Mar-a-Lago. That was the moment that I think most Americans said, or many Americans, I don't know about most, many Americans said, whoa, but that's wild. So he mishandled classified information. Every president since Reagan has admitted that they mishandled classified information. And I don't think anybody would be surprised if Trump played hardball and given it back. I mean, everything in his life is a negotiation. Everything in his life has always been a negotiation. I don't doubt that he obstructed justice. I mean, I've said it over these airways. I don't doubt. I mean, I know he mishandled classified information. I don't know that he didn't obstruct justice. But the optic of men with guns... And, 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 you know, I mean, I'm talking about government agents. I'm not talking about drug lords. I'm not talking about Pablo Escobar and team. I'm not talking about OPEC cartels and bodyguards. I'm talking about when our federal government stationed men with guns at the private residence of a former president after they had basically what was my, what was the guy's name? They took out of bed at gunpoint. He and his wife were uh, Manafort. Oh, it was Manafort. Yeah. I mean, Manafort had been around politics a hundred years. Just hadn't been cozied up to Trump. And next thing you know, they raid his home and, and, and Stone, let CNN Roger know Stone. a little yeah, Roger Stone. I mean, they raid. I just think that's when America said, whoa, whoa. I mean, there are men with guns at these people's home. I mean, they're, they're taking people out of here in handcuffs. I mean, they're mugshots and fingerprints. I just think Americans are like, whoa. I mean, that, that something's wrong here. Something's wrong with, with our country. I mean, does that make America normal again? I mean, when Haley says, make America normal again, Trump says, make America great again. I mean, I'd rather be great than normal. 
But I mean, is that what is that what the Haley crowd are supporting? That it's okay when a president does what every other president has done, except he's a unique disruptor, and he says things you know negatively about the establishment and those in charge. That you station men with guns at his private residence. That Paul Manafort, an old man who's been around Washington a hundred years, I mean, he basically knock his door down in the middle of the night and handcuff the guy and his wife. I mean, really? I mean, is that 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 that's lost upon many, many sane and decent Americans? Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's make Wake Up Carolina normal again. We don't want to be great, Josh. We'll be normal, right? Hell yeah. Yeah. Lost to be great. Tom Brady, make Tom Brady normal again, <laughs> right? I mean, make Gamecock football. Well, that's about it. Yeah, anyway, yeah. let's go. Whoa, stop. Let's, let's go to the ball. Yeah, let's not get, get extreme here. Trish in Dillon. Good morning, Trish. You're on. Hey, Ken. How are you doing? Hey, how are you? I'm good. I just wanted to let you know I've been listening to your show this morning. And I do, I'm one of those people. I'm a Trump supporter. I do read all those publications, Newsweek, The Atlantic, I'm very well informed politically about the government and everything. So just wanted to put that in there. Um, you can put me down as a no vote for Haley forever. Um, but I wanted to ask you a question. How many Democrats did you think voted Saturday? I mean, th- there were 23% that identified as moderate or liberal. I believe okay. I believe about fifteen to seventeen percent Democrat leaning voters voted. That's that's okay. about six or eight percent more than normal. There's always some of those shenanigans that happen, but it's normally ten, eleven, maybe twelve percent. Twenty three percent of the voters identified as moderate or liberal, I think seventeen, eighteen percent of those were Democrats. Okay, so that accounted for what the um, how how many how Tr- much, Trump uh, won the Republican vote between seventy thirty seventy five twenty five. He got about seventy five percent of the Republican primary voters. Okay, which is historically high. I mean, hardly does anybody get seventy five percent of what we'll call traditional Republican primary voters. Okay, but. I agree with you about what you said about Haley. She's exactly what you said. She's all about Nikki. And um, it's not about the people. It's about her and how far she can get. And um, But um, that's that's about all I needed to say. I worked the poll Saturday, so I just... Um, how was turnout? I think it was pretty good. Pretty good for our area, anyway. Mm-hmm. Not as much as I thought. A lot of people didn't vote that I thought would vote. It's a Saturday, and a lot of people just, I mean, it, you know, they, they plan things for the weekend, and they don't want to cancel those plans. I mean, I, I know people that were out of town, and they said, had I known this, I would have not scheduled, you know, being out of town. I just think we need to reconsider whether Saturday is a good day to hold a primary or not. Yeah, and we had a lot of people that came in that had events to go to, but they did come in, and I thought that was you know, really good. Yeah, so, put forth the effort. Thank anyway, you. I just wanted to um, put my two cents worth in and um, tell you to keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. Some say it ain't good work, but it's the <laughs> best we can do. I'll just, I'll leave it, I'll leave it there. 
And and the exit pollings are not exact. I mean, I'm not saying, hey, exactly 23%, but I've seen some overlap of some of the polling, and it looks to me that 23% of the voters, I mean, I'm pretty confident that number. That's a consistent number. CNN had it at 23. Fox had it at 23. The state, eh, either the state or Post and Courier had it at 23. So 23% of the electorate were non-GOP primary voters. They just, you know, but let's be candid now. Trump didn't lose every one of those votes. I mean, Trump's not an ideological savant. I mean, we know that. He's not a student of William Buckley and George Will, and I don't know if he's ever read Atlas Shrugged or not, but Trump is kind of a political misfit, and he fits in a lot of different places. I mean, he doesn't fit in the, in the you know, the establishment Republican Party's wing, but he fits in a lot of different sorts of places, Kahaley believes that Trump lost the non-affiliate 60-40. That's kind of interesting to me. So some of the non-Republican vote was not an anti-Trump vote, but rather, you know, maybe some blue dog Democrats who say, man, enough of this duopoly. This guy's, I mean, I know he's different and crazy and he stirs things up, but what he says about the wars makes sense. What he says about the economy makes since, and I want to go back to something I said earlier, and I and I do believe this. The liberal media showed me yesterday what they're, I mean, they played their hand. I mean, it's all about the day after the South Carolina primary, I mean, they cut Rince Priebus off, you know, a hundred times on the power roundtable with Donna Brazile, and she's saying Biden's fine. I mean, he, you know, he's as spry as ever, and I mean, she's a, a hack, and Priebus to some degree is a hack, but it's obvious to me they're going to try to make this election about abortion, about racism, uh, to to a lesser degree, foreign policy and and um and uh, the environment, but it the Trump crowd are going to try their dead level best to make it about inflation, the economy, uh, immigration, um, the, the what I call the real world crime, the real world issues, and the liberal media will do everything they can to deflect any of that conversation. Because Biden can't run on inflation. I mean, he sucks at it. I mean, you know, we, we Williams will call in when gas goes down, but I hadn't heard of Williams quote a gas price in two or three weeks. I mean, it's nearly $3 a gallon. In sa- National average is over $3 a gallon. Um, health care. I mean, we talked last week about health insurance premiums and how much it costs to do X, Y, crime. I mean, we got the situation in Georgia, you know, an illegal immigrant. Immigration. I mean, that plays into that debate. And, and I, and I want to say this. And this hit me inside knowledge. I mean, this is something I've gathered from people who are much closer to the campaign, but I'm not disclosing something they didn't tell me to disclose. Trump has a very well-run campaign this time. I mean, when you think about it, how much less do we see the Trump family? Just stew on that. For how much less? I mean, obviously, when they're protecting their company in court, I mean, that's their business enterprise. I mean, the Trump I mean, that, that's their inheritance. I mean, they don't want daddy to lose the business, right? I mean, Ivanka and, and Don Jr. and Eric and, uh, to some degree, Barron, I would imagine. I think uh, Don Jr. made a couple of campaign appearances here in South Carolina, but very low-key. Nothing like we saw in right. 16 or 20. Yeah, big difference. And, and I'm told that the two very competent and smart strategists agreed to take the job of running this complicated campaign only if the family played a much minor role in some of the shots called, some of the decisions made. Because, guys, trust me when I say this, 
And I love to go down the the road of, you know, 23%. Wonder how many Democrats voted. When it's still, I mean, I said 50,000 this morning. It's still 100,000 people in about five or six states. There's nothing going to change that. I mean, the presidential election, let's say 10% less Republicans vote in California. So? Let's say 15% less voters or Republican voters vote in in New York. So, but that doesn't change anything. You got to find those voters in those six or seven swing states. You got to identify this, a turnout election. It's a post COVID election that will swing on who does the best job at unsupervised mail-in ballots. I mean, that's where we are today. I mean, we could really end the show, Josh, you could play a trivia question. We could get out of here and we could not do a show the rest of the week about this presidential campaign. 100,000 people, unsupervised mail-in ballots, and who does the best job of finding who the voters are and how to get them to the poll. I mean, that that's what this campaign is all about. Not now there'll be a lot of fluff, there'll be a lot of narrative, be a lot of stories, there'll be a lot of interviews, and that's part of the process. But when you boil it down, can the Trump team find non-college-educated white voters in Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Georgia, and can they get them to the poll in a post-COVID turnout election? If they can, they'll win. If they can't, they may lose. Take a break. Back in a few. Make radio normal again. 843-661. Forget great. I feel very liberated this morning. It's not our job to be great at radio it's our job to be normal. See, it sounds like radio. You're, you're lowering the bar, lowering the expectations. Make radio normal again. You hear that, owners? You hear that, Bruce and Jim? Make radio normal <laughs> again. Well, what is normal? Just middle of the pack. I mean, let's just be middle of the pack. Well, I mean, we'd rather, no, 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 no. Normal. Let's be normal. Forget trying to be exceptional. Forget trying to be great. Let's be normal again. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. It's kind of crazy when you put it like that. Well, isn't yeah, it? That's her campaign slogan. And, and, and I know that's make America normal again. And Stop trying to make America great. And that's that's too hard. That's what you're trying to point out. I get it. And but, point well made. Uh, here's Brian in Florence. Brian, good morning. You are on the air. I'm going to do some uh, normal math for you guys. And it appears to me that the Democratic presidential campaign primary had 131,000 voters. You take a look at what turned out Saturday for the Republicans, it's 775,000 in some change. What do you think the Cahaley boys and the rest of the pundits have to say about voter turnout and the amount of, uh, the, the amount of piss vinegar the Republicans have that Democrats don't have? This is an interesting stat, I'll tell you, to add to that. If Nikki had gotten every vote cast in the Democrat primary in her column, she still loses to Trump. That's pretty crazy. I think it's a bigger number. I think that's probably the most important numbers of everything you kick around is what the actual turnout was. They're both Saturday primaries, so there's no uh, saying it was a Saturday for both of them. Uh, that's, that's six times as much. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. But it's a red state. You had a former governor who spent $16 million I mean, it's not a competitive race. It's really no more competitive than the Democrat race. But because it was a former governor, I'm not saying don't make anything of it, but I'm saying let's be careful to make too much of it. Once again, former governor, $16 million. 
That's going to drive turnout. That's the crazy part of this. Someone put on Facebook uh, this morning that they are, that Haley outraised Trump in January. Haley outraised Trump in February. Well, let me know. No, the report shows that Haley outraised Trump in January. There's speculation that she will have outraised Trump in February. The numbers hadn't come out yet. They hadn't issued their financial disclosures. And I think some of the primaries do it month by month. But there's a belief that Nikki will have raised more money than Trump did in February. And, I mean, I put on there, well, people buy pet rocks. I mean, people do stupid things with their money. I don't know. I mean, I'd love to have enough money where I could get away with doing some stupid things. My problem is I've done a lot of stupid things, and I don't have enough money to do stupid things. And very often you find yourself in a quandary, if you will. But I'm focused not on greatness, but rather normalcy. Normalness. I mean, I, I'm serious. I have, I mean, I have strived to be the best I know how to be on this radio show. And at times we nail it. At times we miss terribly. But I'm going to not focus on that, Rev. And if you don't mind, you talk to the owners. Tell us our intent is not to exceed expectation in ratings any longer. We're not looking for a great ratings they'll, book. They'll be thrilled. We're I'm not sure. looking for great revenue. We want normal revenue. We want normal ratings. I mean, that's what the country is enamored with, right? I mean, forget greatness and exceptionalism. Let's just all be normal. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Williams in Orangeburg, listening to WTQS. Good morning, Williams. What's, what's them gas prices in Orangeburg, Williams? <laughs> hey, it's fluctuating, man. Fluctuating. Fluctuating. Hey, hey, I want you to find out two questions for me. Okay, number one, when tri- when when is the bill due for Trump? What date is due for Trump paying his paying his fine? Number two, I want you to find out about the lawsuit that um, the um, Capitol Hill police on January 6th got injured. All of them supposed to be suing Trump. Can you find out that information for me and pass it on? Williams. What? You don't believe you can beat him if he's not in jail, do you? <laughs> you really, you no, know, you you really and truly don't believe you can beat him if you don't figure out a way to get him off the ballot or put him in, in prison. Can you find out the information for me, please? I will do my best, but I need a gas price update from Orangeburg. If, if, if I'm going to do all that work on your behalf, I need you to give me a fluctuating gas price maybe every okay, other day okay, from Orangeburg. One more thing. You ever heard of a comedian called um, George Collins? Sure, I have. The one with the ponytail and everything? White yeah. boy? Yeah. <laughs> He's a comedic yeah. genius. You know what he said? He said, Republicans care about a kid when he's in the womb. Once he get out the womb, they don't give a damn about it. That proved that fact when all these Republican governors cut off the free lunch program program for needy kids. Have a good day. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate it. Did Williams just say white boy with a ponytail? <laughs> yeah. And I'm not offended at all. I mean, I am not nowhere. I mean, I am not remotely close to being offended. But if I'm going to listen to the That's white true. boy with the ponytail, I need a, I need a gas price update from Williams. Uh, they, that, I, I know it fluctuates. I get that. But I need to know what the price of gas is in our because he told us every day 
when we were kind of on a good oh, little yeah. run there uh, with, with the gas price and um, and the economy. Anyway, um, let's take a break, Josh. I know we got a call, don't we? Let's take we a do. break, then we'll come back and take the call on the other side. 843-661-0937 as we move closer and closer to making America normal again. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm going to beat that drum because that's, that's music to my ears. I don't have to try and be exceptional. I don't have the capacity. I mean, you know, just be normal, right? Right, Josh? Just be normal. I like that. Normal ratings, normal revenue. Yeah, normal sounds, sounds easier. Yeah. Sounds a lot more <laughs> inclusive than trying oh. to be great and exceptional. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Hello, Jim. You're on. Hey, good morning. I, I have an update about Orangeburg County. Uh, more Republic, or More people voted in the Republican primary in Orangeburg than voted in the Democrat primary in Orangeburg. Um, so I, I think this whole thing says more about Biden and the lack of enthusiasm. Um, but at the same time, I would be real hesitant to say that many uh, people, quote unquote, crossed over to vote in the Republican primary. Uh, from 16 to 24, there was about a 2% increase in the number of voters that participated in the Republican uh, presidential primary. So it went from what, about 740,000 to 755,000. Um, but now we've seen a, a dramatic decrease in the amount of people that participate in the Democrat primary. But there are population shifts and, and this type of thing. Um, but uh, how, does, how does Nikki continue to sell herself? Um, I think what we saw uh, with her was, one, you can't call your people from your home state a bunch of racist hillbillies and expect to actually win anything. Um, but the other thing is what I hear when I hear make America normal again is I hear, hey, let's send a bunch of 18-year-old boys to uh, a sandbox somewhere to be blown into little pieces. And that's the part of the establishment that she wants to be in. Um, but, Ken, did you see the bit from Benny Johnson where he went to uh, Bamberg County and went to Bamberg City. Did you see that? I did. Yeah, it, it looks like uh, what you expect from a, a Ukraine or, or Afghanistan. It's just a city torn apart with literal buildings falling over into the streets. And she she lost Bamberg County and she took off to Kiowa Island. So um, she's one of them now, and I'm glad she got her butt cut thank you Jim. thank you jim appreciate it and and i don't understand i mean and this goes back to the philosophical argument and i'd love to be a part of this i've actually got invited to be on a um our television show wednesday down at the beach i mean that's a that's a hotbed of republicanism you know ori county ori county and greenville county are probably the two most prominent republican hotbeds in our state i mean you've got a it's still an evangelical vote i don't think it's quite as evangelical in the upstate, and I'm not saying that negative or positive. I mean, it is what it is. Some people go to church. Some people believe in Jesus. Some don't. Um, that's your prerogative. You do what you've got to do. And uh, But along the coast, there, it's not as evangelically influenced. And we're talking about America first. I'm interested in, and, I, and I've got some data here. I've just not delved into it because of the race and Gamecocks playing basketball, a little bit of baseball over the weekend. I try to check out and not pay as intense attention, you know, to some of the policy. But I want to look at Ori and, and Greenville. I mean, that, that matters to me. I know Nikki lost. I mean, I said earlier to me, 
the interesting part of what I read uh, Sunday, some of the postmortem, it looks like Nikki won Nancy Mace's district. And Catherine Templeton is running as a, I guess, a kinder, gentler Republican than Nancy Mace is. I'll be very interested in what sort of um, opinion the Mace campaign and the, the Templeton campaign to come have to say about that particular district. I mean, that, that we're playing inside baseball now. I mean, you know what, in some of the exit polling, what was the reason? What is the percentage of women and men and college-educated and non-college-educated? That's fun. I mean, that's political science to me. And, and I want to see how Trump performed in Horry County, how he performed in Horry County, excuse me, in Greenville County, because those are the two big mother loads of Republican voters in in our state, I mean, they're everywhere, but that's, I mean, there, there's a, a tremendous number of Republicans in Horry County, in Greenville County. How did Trump and Nikki fare exclusively in those, in those two counties? I'd be very interested. Somebody can probably send me that. I know one person in particular that may. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go back and establish the kind of, kind of the, the orientation of the debate. For three hours, we've talked about we, you, the listeners, the callers, me, Josh, Rev. We've talked a lot about the South Carolina primary, what to make of it, what's the underlying currents. I mean, what what are the things we aren't paying close attention to? I mean, I enjoy that as much as you do. I mean, I really do. I mean, is there something that I didn't pick up on? I mean, I even went so far as to try and 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 enlighten you on. And Josh nodded his head. I mean, it's. Historically, Republican Democrat has been black white. It's turning into college educated or not. It's turning into female or not. I mean, there, there's a larger since Trump comes on the scene in 2016, the percentage of minority vote has increased. The percentage of female vote has decreased. Now, now, without going just really getting complicated, start talking about college-educated females making over $100,000, college-educated females making over $100,000 that own their, excuse me, that own their own business. I mean, we're talking about getting in the weeds there, but it's true. I mean, college-educated females that make over $100,000 are far more inclined to vote against Trump than for Trump, unless they make over $100,000 a year owning their own business. And then they're far more inclined to be supportive of Trump. I mean, that's the degree that some of these exit pollsters and strategists and and consulting firms, that's the degree of which they try to understand. I mean, it's micro-targeting is what it is. It's it's a little bit, it's the politicization, Rev, of what Facebook does. I mean, it tries to read our mind. Remember, we talk about, you know, if, if you and I talk about Ford pickups or Chevrolet pickups or headphones or computers, we get these notifications, ads and whatnot. I mean, it's a little bit like that. I mean, the, the the campaigns are trying to basically read your mind. And what what makes Dave Baker more or less likely to believe that this candidate represents his worldview or genuine interest? But and, and all that's complicated. And it, it's I mean, there's a, an enormous amount of money spent on some of the data and analytics and messaging and what. But at the end of the day, the the reality is a hundred thousand people in about six states will decide whether Joe Biden or his replacement or Donald Trump or his replacement are going to be the president 
of the United States. I mean, it, yeah, it's going to come down to how many white females and black males and college educate not. But at the end of the day, I mean, and I believe this with every fiber of my being, and maybe that's why Rona McDaniel has been replaced. I think she was asked to leave. I think a lot of pressure over the weekend to get rid of Rona McDaniel from what I'm gathering. And I think Robert said this Thursday that the the person that Trump believes is best suited today, and I don't think it's a slide against anybody else, but there's a guy in North Carolina that has done a lot of work on work on voting integrity. I mean, let's, um, I mean, you know, let's, let's, Donald Trump in 2020 won the votes cast with a witness by 11 points. He lost the votes cast without a witness by 12 points. I mean, that's a statistical anomaly in itself. So you mean to tell me that everybody who voted with a witness voted for Trump? No, I didn't say everybody. I said he won pretty overwhelmingly, but everybody that we didn't have a witness to them casting that ballot, the unsupervised mail-in ballots, and the guy in North Carolina that it sounds to me Trump's most supportive of, he's kind of made a name in that world, voting integrity. Um, and, and I think, Rev, what we've got to decide as Republicans, do you fight against that? Or do you accept it as reality in some of the states? I mean, you can be a Republican and not like unsupervised mail-in ballots, but if it's Pennsylvania, Michigan, or uh, Georgia, well, Georgia would be different. Now, Georgia's controlled by the General Assembly's Republican so and a Republican governor, so you can get some things done there. But if you think Pennsylvania is going to do away with unsupervised mail-in ballots since it became somewhat normalized in 2020, and that goes back to what the Trump campaign are trying to make serious and significant investments in, and that is who are these people most likely to be supporters of Donald Trump? And if they're low propensity voters, how do we find them and make sure a ballot is in their hand and let's help. I mean, let's, let's say it publicly. You ready? Let's coach them how to fill out the ballot. I mean, it's fighting fire with fire. Unsupervised mail-in ballots is now the way you win elections. It's not about turnout on election day. It's not about the weather and it's cold or warm. I mean, that's the case in primaries. But in the 2024 presidential election, the winner will have been more successful finding those 100,000 people in those five, six, seven states, getting a ballot in their hand, harvesting that ballot and getting it back to the precinct and somebody legitimately counting that vote. That's where we are. I mean, we can have a lot of fun talking about 75, 25% and, you know, America first, make America normal again. All of that matters. All of that goes into the devil's brew of politics. But the winner of the 2024 presidential election will be the candidate campaign and political party who figure out a way to outdo the other in unsupervised mail-in ballots, period. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Hey, Ken, if uh, you played a football game at home and you lost 59 to 39, how would what would you think about that? I think I got my butt cut. I would think I got my butt cut. Only in politics can you spin that into a win because you were supposed to lose by 24 points. But anyway, uh, Nikki really lost 47 to 3. If you look at it in the delegate count, and that's really a butt whipping. And what's going to happen here, I guess tomorrow they go to Michigan, and I don't understand this. They've got a primary and a caucus in Michigan. That doesn't make any sense. 
But anyway, that, that's, that's the first of these flip states. So I'm paying attention to see how many people turn out for this election in Michigan. And I was thinking about, you said Nikki Haley spent $16 million here in South Carolina. And we really only have like seven TV markets to go that route. I know they do this stuff on YouTube and this and that. But March 5th, they're going to go to California and Texas. I mean, can you imagine how many television markets are in California and Texas? So my my question is, where does this money come from? Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. I mean, people buy pet rocks. <laughs> I know that sounds <laughs> stupid, but I mean, people do things with their money. And I mean, I, it, Nikki's not running for, for president. I mean, I guess to begin with, okay, is Trump fatigue real? Yeah. Is it pervasive to some degree? Is it enough to win me a primary? No. I mean, and true, until people actually voted. Well, I mean, you they, don't you know. know. You I don't mean, know. Well, I mean, and you hear this anecdotal stories. You know, people are tired of Trump. People are tired of Trump. Um, I, 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 some are. Some aren't. Some are tired of Nikki. Some aren't. Some are tired of you and I. Some aren't. Um I've just learned over the years to not, when you have an opportunity to really, I don't know, sink your teeth into something, politics will teach you not to. It's never as it appears. I mean, it really and truly isn't. I mean, give yourself a week or so to kind of evaluate and, and let some things kind of stew and and settle. And and I, I think we're going to make a big mistake if you if you look at South Carolina and say, okay, I can read everything there is to read in what to look forward to in South Carolina. I, I, I think that's, I mean, it, once again, it's a lot of fun. It, it's interesting to have a, you know, a debate with a pollster or a strategist and, and some of these folks have offered up interesting opinions. Um, I mean, I think Tanya J. Powers acquitted herself well when I asked her that single question. And I've, one of the questions I have for the mainstream media, I mean, if you're so interested in politics and you appear to be, I mean, I'm talking about the the state media, the national media, uh, not much of a local media, but state and national. I mean, if you're so interested, then stop telling me a hundred times what Haley voters will do if Trump's the nominee and tell me what Trump voters will do if Haley is the nominee. I mean, we know, we, we've been led to believe that we're rolling the dice, Rev, if we elect this unelectable guy again. You better be careful because the Haley voter will stay home. They have that right. I mean, there's nothing I can do to convince a Haley voter that Trump is better for America. I mean, that's not my job. That's, you know, I talk about it on the radio every single day. Some believe in what I say. Some don't believe in what I say. Some act upon some of the things we have discussions about. Some don't. I mean, that's your prerogative. You are absolutely within your constitutional rights as a Haley supporter to say, I'm never voting for Donald Trump under any circumstance. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to convince you otherwise. I think there's more fertile ground and better ways to spend resources. And for every, I mean, I've told you what I believe. I believe that 30% of Republican voters who voted against Donald Trump, I believe roughly half of those mean what they say. I think somewhere between 10 and 15%. If Trump's got 70% support of Republican primary voters, that number is 15 15 just aren't coming back. If Trump has 75%, that means 12.5% aren't coming back. But what if Trump's got 70 or 75% and 
and Nikki wins, how many of those aren't coming back? That's, that's, I mean, that I've, I've said it before and I've told Drew this over and over. I've told Haley this over and over to believe that a Trump voter is a Republican voter is a generational mistake that the RNC can't make. The Trump voter is a Trump voter. What does the Trump voter do post Donald Trump? You want a real complicated answer, Josh? Oh, no. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. And then these experts, pro and con, for and against, I mean, they know. Sure, they know. I mean, they know. They've worked in factories all their lives, and they've lived on farms all their lives. I mean, they just happen to end mm-hmm. up at the New York Times and Washington Post. Well, one of the one of the interesting parts of this entire political dynamic that we find ourselves experiencing, and I'm talking about Trump being a dominant figure on the on the um, on the national stage, is the number of people who tell you what Trump voters believe who don't know any Trump voters. I mean, I watched that power roundtable on Stephanopoulos. Or they have disdain for the Trump voters. Well, they, the of course, talking. they have disdain, but they've read a book. They've they've um they've watched uh, they they read an article in the New York Times. How many New York Times reporters know a single Trump voter? And they're not making an effort to go out and find. And I think Tanya was genuine when she said, "Give me a chance." I mean, I'd love to go out in Trump world and talk to some of these people. And, and understand what their complaints are, what their considerations are, where they come from, what they believe in. Why are they so enthusiastic about draining the swamp or, you know, upsetting the apple? What is the motivation there? I mean, the last thing that I'm going to listen to or pay any attention or give consideration to is a writer at the New York Times or a reporter on ABC News telling me who the Trump voters are and what they believe. And, and, I, and I still don't understand this. And I said it earlier, and I'll, I'll stick to I don't understand the need to insult. I don't understand the need to insult Trump. I don't understand the need. I mean, if you're going to be productive, and if politics is generally about math, there's a lot more of them than there are you. I mean, if you're, if you're a never-Trumper, and it appears you're to make them feel better for I, some I, reason. I, it, it's a, that's what I don't understand. It's a weird complexity of the human condition I think it borders, I mean, I think it centers on arrogance. I mean, I think the arrogance of someone who says he can't win in 16 and he does, well, he'll get killed in 20. He does, he gets beat, and there's a big debate about that election, whether they want to accept that debate or not. That's their prerogative. That's their right. I mean, of course, you know, we can, and then there's, you know, well, I mean, after he loses in 20, I mean, it's obvious he's done. And he comes back and decides to run, and he's once again the dominant force. So, so I think the... Those who believe they really genuinely know what they're talking about and have a lot of confidence in their opinion, and they're wrong over and over and over and over again about this particular political movement, I mean, I think the arrogance kind of takes over. I think you become blinded by your own, by your own arrogance. Now, there, there's a sincerity out there, Rev, and you and I have given them the benefit. There are some people out there that I know that he just ain't their cup of tea. And under no circumstance could they find themselves voting for that guy because he just plainly ain't their cup of tea. I wish that weren't the case because we need you. I mean, if we're going to stop Biden and, and, you know, open borders and inflation and, you know, just the craziness of what the Democrat Party believes in today, I think we need you to be on the team. But, but if you decide not to be on the team, we got to go find replacements. And I think the place to go find replacements is these 4.5 million 
non-college educated white low propensity voters, get them on the ballot. I mean, I think you're better off trying to convince them to show up on election day in November than you are, you know, twisting the arms, kissing the ring, bowing to the altar of these never Trumpers who say under no circumstance will I be. I mean, you know, if you beg hard enough, maybe you get me back on the team. I just think the Trump team has decided we're not begging, but so hard. We're not wasting, but so much of our time. And whatever that number is, we've got to go make it up somewhere else. Let's go to the phone. Danny and Camden. Good morning, Danny. You're on. Hey, uh, I was just, I mean, I've heard the whole conversation this morning. Why not change the narrative just a little bit to uh, never Trumpers to maybe MAGA first and, 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 and make the narrative there's more of a MAGA presence in the Republican Party than there is in the Democrat Party. So if Nikki Haley would not be my first choice, but she is a Republican and she's going to get more heat from the Republican Party to vote the right way or do the right things when she's in office because of the America First agenda. So why not change the get 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 off of Trump and make it all about make America great again first? That ought to be first in any of votes. So if you can't get Trump, the next best thing to keep America first and just kind of get the narrative changed a little bit. Thank you. Appreciate that. But that's easier said than done with Trump's there. I mean, I don't know that Trump wants it to be about America first. I mean, Trump likes it to be about Trump. I mean, he's, he's running for president. He's won. He's lost. He's running again. I mean, I, I totally agree with what the caller said. I think the ultimate goal is try to build a political platform based on America first. And I've told you, I got the bumper sticker. And if I were running for office, I'd have to come up with more than this. But, but if someone said, okay, I mean, you want to, you want to embrace America first. You want to make America first. You want to make America great again. What does that mean to you? And I think the bumper sticker is policies that empower the American worker, the American family, and the American way of life. That'd be the closing line in an eight-minute stump speech. But there's got to be a lot more than that. But as long as Trump is here, it's going to be about Trump. I mean, I think you're fooling yourselves to believe we can make it about something other than Trump when Trump is the central figure. Not only is he that controversial and that interesting and, and good for ratings, I mean, let's be honest. The media loves to hate him. They're, they, you know, their their ratings are are better with him on the scene. So, so despite their feelings about Trump a candidate, it's good for business when he's a candidate. But, but I think the ultimate question is what happens to the movement once Trump is gone for good. And that could be November of this year. It could be you know January of twenty twenty eight twenty twenty nine. When he's um when he's you know no longer president, I'd love to say, hey, I've got all of that figured out. Let's sit down and I'll tell you what we need to do for point eight nine. I mean, I think that's a, a work in progress, but it's something that we need to be considering because Trump, as dominant as he is today, America first, I hope, has a 40, 50 year run of being a part of American government. Take a break, back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, eight four three. Six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Rujan in Darlington. Good morning. You're on. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Listen, uh, <laughs> better get out of way I, that uh, fork yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> listen, uh, I, I I listen to Bob Costas, you know, and, and the the way he he attacked us, uh, Trump supporters, and, and you can guarantee 
he'll never he'll never bend. I'll never bend my ear to him again. Uh, you know, if you're gonna do sports, stick to sports. That was totally unnecessary. I don't even know if he knows Donald Trump, and I damn sure know he don't know me. So uh, uh, I'm like with Stephen A. Jackson: stick to damn sports and nothing else. Uh, keep your opinions, you know, to yourself, and and, and quit trying to uh, influence people. You, he just alienated. Uh, I would say 90 percent of his of the individuals that would listen to him on on TV on radio or, or, or uh, otherwise by saying what he said you know he called us a cult he called Trump an atrocious man and uh, I, I like I said you know he, he, he he's, he's toast as far as I'm concerned thank you Rue John appreciate that but you ask yourself in all honesty how I mean what how did Bob Costas go about formulating? an opinion of Trump voters. I mean, just kind of stew on that for a second. I'm asking. I mean, I, I don't know. He may, I mean, he may be in the in the heart and soul of Trump world. I don't know. But Bob Costa said it's a cult. He's an evil man. He's nasty and wicked and his followers. you got to believe he hangs out with the elites. They're well, at the cocktail parties and that's. But but I don't know that. That's right. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, Bob Costas may have this secret life that he were, you know, <laughs> he hangs around at muffler shops and manufacturing plants. You know, the majority of people who support Donald Trump are blue collar. We know that. It's almost like there's this weird story in society that those who mow lawns, cook food, keep kids, work on the cars, you know, just kind of make the wealthy people's lives better, you're to do what you're supposed to do. And that is what they tell you to do. Who do you think you are? I mean, you wash my car. You mow my lawn. You don't get to vote. Uh, you know, as your vote is not as important as, as mine is. And that goes back to, I just don't understand the need to insult. For the life of me. I mean, if, if, if I'm a business person and I know that a, a large share of the country are buying into something, why do I want to insult those people? Why wouldn't I be curious about why you've gotten there and how you got there and maybe we can have a conversation about it um they kind of left the trump crowd no choice but to fight i mean no nobody's interested in how many trump voters wouldn't vote for nikki haley i mean every voter that voted i mean we know exactly or we know what we're led to believe about trump voters excuse me haley voters and their unlikeliness or not in voting for trump we don't have any data that's just that's a non-story I mean, the truth is they're afraid of that number. I mean, they're scared to death of that number. And I believe this, Rev. And I'm not, I mean, I'm just, I think there's more than there's ever been. I mean, I really believe that there's more support for Donald Trump as a candidate for president than there's ever been. Now, is there enough to match the infrastructure the Democrats have built in unsupervised mail-in ballot, ballot harvesting? I didn't say stealing. I didn't say cheating. That this new way we vote post-pandemic have the have the have the Democrats got such an advantage in that foray of politics that it doesn't matter, you know, what Trump's intensity is or how many voters he has. Remember, they they've got this thing down to a science. Can the Republicans in the next seven month, uh, ten months, build an infrastructure to match what the Democrats have in these swing states? I don't know. Don't have any idea. I know they're attempting to because we know that um, in any precinct where 250 low propensity, white, non-college educated voters, the Trump team has an employee there. 
and they're scouring the countryside, finding these voters. I mean, they're probably living in the same area Bob Costas does. I would imagine Costas lives, you know, amongst all the Trump voters, and that's Mm -hmm. how he has such an informed opinion. I've just never understood the need to insult. I'm the knee jerk to insult Trump, to insult his army of supporters. I just, to me, it would have been far more successful saying, hey, something's happening here. I mean, something's happening here, and we need to figure out a way to kind of, um, I'm not saying give in. I didn't say, you know, accept this as the norm, but but try to be intellectually curious and, and ask yourself as a leader, what's happening here? Well, you talked about that in 2016 with the Democrats in particular. Why, do, why weren't they a little introspective and in saying, okay, why did this happen? Well, I mean, to me, the only thing, I mean, if you are an influential politico and you wake up the Wednesday morning after Trump shocks the world in 16, the only sane action for you to take is to look in the mirror and say, what in the world happened? I mean, how did the American people, how did we lose so much faith and trust of the American people, and how do we regain it? Good land. I mean, this guy was a carnival barker, a con man, a crazy political actor, and he won fairly overwhelmingly. Why don't we at least try and understand how the uncon- the inconceivable could have could have happened, but they didn't do that. I mean, they basically, you know, censored s- some of the um some of the storylines. They 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 started a rumor about Russia, Russia, Russia. They planted information. I mean, think about what they did, guys. They spied, investigated. I mean, they, they they spied and investigated, but they I mean, an FBI agent lost his job because he admitted he altered a document to get a FISA warrant. I mean, to think about what extreme instead of being curious about okay there's something happening here and we don't need to just not pay it any attention no i mean they double triple quadruple down and i believe that i I don't think that's arrogance i think that's self-preservation i think their lives require a certain degree of cover and a certain degree of insiderism and if that is exposed i mean there will be houses in the hamptons for sale there will be private jets and shares of jets for sale. It's all dependent upon the game they play feeding at the trough of the taxpayer funded American government. Let's go to the phone. Larry in Sumter listening to WTXY. Hello, Larry. You're on. Hello. Um, I'm just curious. Uh, Doesn't the Republican Party have anything to say about uh, Nikki Haley continuing to run, even though she's lost every primary she's been in? And and, uh, I wouldn't thrilled with her when she was here in uh, South Carolina. But uh, why didn't she just run as a rhino? Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. I'm not that bothered that Haley is still in the race. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't upset me. I mean, when I think if I'm a strategist, I mean, all that money the Koch brothers are spending, all that money some of the Wall Streeters are spending, I mean, if I thought they would genuinely give that money to Trump, then obviously I'm bothered by it because he needs that money to fund his campaign. But I don't think there's a circumstance that the Koch brothers get on board with Donald Trump. I don't think there's a circumstance that Wall Street gets on board with Donald Trump. I mean, if he, if, you know, if, if, if he's an anti-establishment candidate, I mean, the Koch brothers fund open borders. Wall Street funds the continuation of kind of insiderism and whatnot. So, I mean, you know, do, do I think it makes any sense for Haley to run? No. Do I think it makes any sense to make a contribution 
to Nikki Haley's campaign. I mean, it makes you feel better about yourself. I mean, if, if there's some internal moral scorecard you keep and you send Haley $100 to stop Trump because you genuinely believe he's a menace to society, you, I mean, you're entitled to do that. I'm not offended by that. Um, I do think that if you're a conservative at heart, if you advocate for limited government, you're helping someone who doesn't believe what you believe win. I mean, I guess that's the personal conflict you find yourself in. I mean, if you're a, if you're a conservative-minded person, but you don't like Trump, helping Nikki Haley, I understand. I mean, you, you're agreeing that you don't like Trump more than you want to see somebody who executes Republican policies. And you can say, well, Trump's not a conservative. Well, I mean, I don't disagree with that. I'm not sure I know what Trump is ideologically, but but he's pro-business. And to me, that's a, a conservative principle. I mean, the things Donald Trump did are pro-business. I mean, people criticize about the debt and some of these other, I mean, I, I've never said, I've never given Trump a moment's credit for addressing the debt. Uh, I got a plan on the debt. I want to talk about it tomorrow. Don't want to, I want to make sure we cover the election, South Carolina primary, but I've got an interesting scenario that I'll offer to you, our listeners, to get your feedback on about what we could or could not do, more likely could not do, about our um, about our federal debt. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. John in Florence. Hello, John. You're on. Good morning, uh, Ken and Dave. Um, try to be quick. Um, we talked earlier about the uh, will the uh, never Trumpers get in line when um, Nikki loses. Uh, it's back in 2000 when McCain was running against uh, Bush. But I, when he lost the primary, they came. I forget who the lady was. The sort of the Drew McKissick back then told us that the, us McCain people were going to have to get in line. We did get in line, and we got behind Bush, which was a better choice than Al Gore, because um, I can't imagine Al Gore. Um, for 9-11 or anything else. But then we got uh, eight years of compassionate conservatism, which about killed us. Um, we got an Iraq war that uh, got rid of a, a stabilizing force and Saddam Hussein, no matter how much you hated him, but just because he threatened his daddy. But um, then at the end of the eight years, what really got me mad, I was throwing paper balls at the TV when he was agreeing with the quantitative easing of during the getting going through a recession and going to bail out all these people that that really took the goat. But anyway, um, will they do the same as we, will the never Trumpers do the same as we did? We, I mean, are, are they going to be too arrogant and just so selfish that they're not going to um, take the medicine? I mean, it'll still be a Republican, but but knows? if you think anyway. of th- well, I appreciate the call. But if you think about it, guys, it's 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 kind of customary. If you're powerful and influential to tell the ones with no power or influence, look, I mean, don't you want to be a part of the team? This is, um, this is in reverse. I mean, this is completely inverted. This is those with no power or influence overwhelming those that have all the power and influence. The most bizarre part of Nikki Haley's campaign for president, she has all the donors you could imagine. Not a lot of voters. I mean, that, that, when you really think about it, just so, so, so historically the Republican Party kind of gets back in line, right? But who's told us to get in line? The leaders of the party. 
the wealthy donors, the insiders, the establishment. And we kind of feel like, okay, I mean, you know, we did all we could do to try and voice our opinions of displeasure. But all of a sudden you wake up one day and there's a lot more of you than there are of them. You can't fund what the Koch brothers can fund. You can't fund what Wall Street can fund. You can't fund what the military industrial complex can fund. But you can beat them in the ballot box without money. And I do believe that part of this is the uh, decentralized media, the fact that you can't control the narrative anymore. I think when you control the narrative and everybody was in on the fix and the powerless and and non-influential were told to get back in line, you felt it was the right thing to do. Well, all of a sudden, you got decentralized media. You got the proliferation, as Obama said, of, of media, and it keeps him up at night, which is good enough for me. I mean, anything that keeps Barack Obama up at night, I'm probably a fan of. Um, but the the peasants rev, the peasants are telling the overlords to kind of follow us. And the overlords are going like, what do you mean follow you? <laughs> that's not how this works. I mean, that's not how this works. <laughs> I mean, this has never been about people. This has always been about, this has never been the popular opinion. I mean, this has always been about the the money influ- the money that influences American politics and how you create and shape a narrative. It's always been about that until it ain't. And it's not today. It's fundamentally different today. So the bizarre part of Haley's campaign, she was going to never run out of money. I mean, people gave Nikki Haley money knowing that she had zero chance to win the Republican primary. So you ask yourself, is there some unwritten moral code that these people are living by? Or is this genuinely to try and stop Donald Trump from winning in 2028? I mean, 2024. Is it trying to position Haley as the front runner for 2020? The only way Nikki wins in the long run, and I'm talking about the long game, the only way Nikki wins is in 2028 or in 2024, Trump loses bad. I mean, he loses North Carolina, he loses Georgia, it's competitive in South Carolina, he loses Ohio, he loses Florida. You know what I mean? The wheels just come off. And Haley says, okay, I was the only person that stayed in long enough to make him fight for the nomination. Surely that counts for something. I mean, surely there's a reward, there's a day of repayment. And the, but I mean that's not going to happen. But when I when I play out Haley, worst case she's done as a Republican politician. When I play out Haley, Haley's best case, Trump loses. Just his word. You ready? Badly in the uh, in the twenty twenty four presidential cycle. And Nikki Haley and her army of donors, not voters, her army of donors say, "We told you." I mean, and I think that's what they're trying to do. I mean, I think this is all about the long game. It's about 2028. It's about the, you know, trying to get the Republican Party back in its former state. Uh, and that means intervention. That means globalism. That means, you know, a banishment of America first from being kind of the priority of this of this political party. The one thing we've got to do as America Firsters is figure out a way to raise some money. America First is not in Wall Street's best interest. America First is not in corporate America's best interest. America first is not in the military industrial complex's best interest. As long as we preach America first, we're not going to be well-funded. We've got to find a bunch of hayseed, drag tags, and cowboys who are willing to pony up to some degree little contributions of money 
that in the aggregate can influence American politics in quite a dynamic way. And that means people have historically not given to the body politic have to be comfortable with bank drafting $10 a month or $5 a month or $20 a month, whatever your comfort level is and whatever you can afford. I mean, if you're truly an America firster and you would genuinely want to see this be the dominant political movement for the next 20 or 25 years, it can't do it without money. I mean, it just, I mean, it's going to take some funding. Do you have to match the Koch brothers and George Soros? You'll never be able to, but if enough of us contributed increments, the Bernie Sanders model, I mean, it really is small donors repetitively giving to a uh, cause and that calls being America first. Let's do some trivia, Josh, on this Monday morning. I want to thank our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Um, I'm awake now. Got me a Celsius and a <laughs> Aquafina under my belt. A couple of cups good. of coffee. I'm good to go on this um, Monday after a primary. Talking about primaries, talking about debates, talking about candidates, old, young, who can carry on a conversation or not. One of the older politicians in modern American history had one of the great, great lines in a presidential debate. Here's my question. If the correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts, who uttered the line, there you go again, during a presidential debate? Who uttered the line, there you go again, during a presidential debate? 843-661-0937 is our number. The correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, and a couple of Takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts, courtesy of our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Hi, you're on the air. What's your guess? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Who is this where you're calling from? Um, Dennis from Sumter. Thank you, sir, Dennis, for calling. Thank you for listening. Uh, remember that? There you go again. And then remember he talked about age in one of those yeah. debates. But this would have been Mondale. I think there you go again may have been Carter. One or the other, I don't remember. But it was Ronald Reagan who said, there you go again, um, during one of the debates. In, in, in the debate with Mondale, when Mondale wanted to bring his age up, and Reagan said that he had heard Mondale discuss with some reporters the fact of how old he was, and they were going to eventually make that an issue, and he was sitting on go and ready for it. <laughs> he had the line ready. He said, I'll never make as an issue in this campaign my candidate's lack of experience and youthful <laughs> over-exuberance or something <laughs> To that effect. And uh, Reagan just had the ability to deliver uh, some of the great, great one-liners in presidential, in modern presidential uh, debate history. The greatest line ever is still Ernest Hollings. I mean, I, we, we may go there tomorrow. When, when, when running against Henry McMaster for a Senate seat back in the day. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.